0: Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson. I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we are introducing one of our older series, but it is, I would say, probably other than the seafood episodes the most referenced episodes on our show. We talk about them a lot. We're always like, oh, but you can learn more about this on our clothing series. So we have mushed them all together in one super episode for anyone who hasn't heard or who needs a refresher on just how terrible the fashion industry is, because it's easy to forget.
1: Yeah, there's a a lot of really good content in what I have tentatively titled our marathon of human sadness. (laughs) (laughs) We cover everything from sort of what are the origins of sweatshops to what are the fabrics that we wear today actually made out of and how are the types of clothes that we produce every day made to what actually happens when you put your clothing in a donation box. There's a lot that we cover in, I think it's like three hours of content that people are gearing up for.
0: (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot. And at one point you made me cry, which is crazy because you originally, this was so sad that you told me to prepare dad jokes and I prepared dad jokes and pickup lines. So now I can look like an absolute monster After you say something terrible and I give a really flippant joke and I'm like, cool, I'm glad we're really making light of how horrible this is. But I am not completely dead inside. You did make me cry when we were talking about the Rana Plaza accident, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the worst workplace
1: disasters that's happened in
0: modern history. So gear up for that, I guess. (laughs) This is also a really great thing to listen to because next week we will be putting out an episode on fashion revolution with an amazing guest. So everyone can get prepared for that, which is an actual fun episode by listening to this. Yeah, listen to everything that's
1: wrong with the fashion industry and then wait a week and we'll tell you how you can help.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Without further ado, enjoy this throwback. Uh, The thing about the clothing industry is that it feels like every time you flip over a rock, there's, like, more stuff to flip over.
1: Yeah, basically, like, name a problem in the world, and the clothing industry is somehow involved in it. It's really astounding. So part one, which is what you're listening to right now, is going to look at people in clothing. So it'll look at human rights, workers' rights, things like that. Then part two will look at clothing and the environment. And then in part three, we're gonna focus on the strategies that you can employ to have a conscious closet. So what is it that you do about all of this information? That'll be part three.
0: Which I'm looking forward to. That's gonna be my favorite one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. But I think you can't really you can't really approach that until you've learned about what's really causing the human rights issues and the environmental issues in the clothing industry.
0: I'm glad that there is a light at the end of this, I feel like what's going to be a long dark tunnel. <laughs>
1: Yes. And uh, because we know that definitely this part and also the environment section are going to be a little dark, I asked Kyla to prep a bunch of dad jokes and we're just going <laughs> to whip them out at
0: different times. So they're going to be really inappropriate and not fit into the topic at all and probably really minimalize some really horrible things. And I feel really <laughs> bad for saying them. You're going to be like, this person died in this horrific way. Tell us a joke, and I'm gonna be like, ah, make us all laugh. <laughs> Go,
1: dance monkey. <laughs> uh, before we get started, though, do you wanna do you wanna talk to us about the challenge that you did for this episode? You you tried something a little new, didn't you?
0: Yeah. Okay. So as if this podcast wasn't costing me enough money, I went out and bought <laughs> a sewing machine. Which, to be fair, is something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. But I've lived a very transient life uh, that just didn't lend itself to owning a sewing machine. So I haven't actually touched a sewing machine since I was 15, 14 or 15, like in school. And even then, I was pretty lazy about it. I did the bare minimum that my teacher wanted. And then I went and did like the cooking stuff. That was more my jam. But I decided recently that... Making clothes probably isn't that hard and I could make my own because I every time I try on clothes, I'm like, oh, this doesn't fit just right. Or I I like this part of this outfit, but not this part. And I was like, I could just make my own. Easy. It wasn't easy. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) I I feel like I did know that going in, but I was like, oh, I'll figure it out. So I didn't really know what I needed. So I didn't have any thread or a pattern. uh, And I was like, I'll make a dress. So I had to like run out and get some thread but I didn't get a pattern, so I just went on, like, the internet, and I was Googling, like, how to make a dress. Easy stuff, uh, but it's not easy. So then I switched to, like, pajama pants. I was like, okay, I'll make some pajama pants. And the re- part of the reason I switched from that as well uh, to that from a dress is that I also didn't have any material because I didn't go out and buy any, but I had a bunch of, like, old clothes that I wasn't using uh, that I'm going to be using for another project, but I decided I would take some fabric from one of these clothing items and it used to be pants actually so I, I kind of took pants and then I was going to repurpose them back <laughs> into them pants. Pants. <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't like they like at the time upcycling I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I mean at the time when I bought them I got them when I was in India and they didn't quite fit but I really liked the pattern so I like cut them up and I was going to turn them into a skirt and I spent maybe six or seven hours just like hand stitching them when I was in India and it didn't wow. turn out so well no it turned yeah it turned out <laughs> very badly huge waste of effort so I just had this like material, and I was like, okay, but it wasn't enough to make a dress. I couldn't quite figure out how I was going to make that happen. So I was like, okay, I'll turn them back into pants and they'll be super comfortable. No, that's not what happened. Oh, no, yeah. I. I tried to do it without a pattern, so I just, like, freehand cut it, (laughs) and I, and I, and I, like, traced it with, like, a pair of other pants, but I was so dumb, and I used pants with, like, an elastic in the waist, so my waist is a little bit too small, (laughs) (laughs) because I forgot to stretch them out when I was cut. It was a whole thing. I cut them all, like, facing one way, so, like... The, they didn't. Basically, there was just no crotch in them. Like there was just like not a lot of room downstairs because <laughs> I cut them wrong, and and then the machine kept jamming because I think I have bad sewing technique. And it was a, it was an effort. But I kind of was like, I wanted to go in and just like make all of the mistakes that I knew I would eventually make at once. So I was like, right, I'll freehand it. I won't use a pattern. It's a I, very
1: optimistic way of framing
0: it. Yeah. And then I was like, okay. And then every mistake I make is like a mistake I won't make in the future. So. Now I'm gonna go get some fabric and some thread and I'm gonna have a real go at it, but I for the challenge I was like, okay, I'll use the fabric that I have, I'll use some thread that I like picked up and I'll turn these into pants and uh they are yeah, worse pants now than they were when I bought them originally. <laughs> <laughs> my sewing lines are, like, all crooked. Like, I didn't sew in a straight line at all. (laughs) Uh, That was my challenge. unmitigated disaster. But I feel like it's gonna lead into better things because I'm gonna use this sewing machine to do more stuff with, for sure.
1: You gotta fuck up the first time you sew. I feel like that's just necessity. So, at least you did it with fabric you already had and didn't know what to do with. And... After we record this episode, you'll have lots of good tips on which fabrics to choose for your next project.
0: Yeah, great. I'm glad we're going to talk about fabrics because that is something that I've been struggling with. But leading into this conversation that we're going to have, making clothes, I you think is easy, but it's like not, and I already had a lot of like feels for people who worked in the garment industry because it's so fucked up, but also it's not something that I can just do by myself. So like the respect of the people who work in the garment industry, I think it doesn't... It Whatever people feel like it deserves, it deserves more.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, like, a lot of times these kinds of jobs get talked about as, like, unskilled labor, and it's not at all. It is an incredible amount of skill. It takes so much skill, yeah.
0: yeah. It's not something I can just do. I can't just pick up a sewing machine and make pants. You've tried. <laughs> that, I mean, maybe if I had tried with a pattern. But, but the point is that, like, it does take skill, like, yeah, I'm sure that it's super easy for people who've done ten thousand pairs of pants. but it you have to get to that point,
1: so yeah, I think that's a really good way to to sort of start framing our episode talking about the people that are behind the clothes that we make. I think the way to to sort of start talking about this issue is to talk about the business model that's at the center of the problem. Um, and that's fast fashion. So fast fashion is something that's gotten a lot of buzz recently. Hassan Minaj did an episode of it on the Patriot Act. CBC recently did a documentary of it called Fashion's Dirty Secrets. There are also a bunch of books that are out on fast fashion. It's There's a lot of information out there if you want to about fast fashion, and people are talking about it more and more because it's really fucked. Uh, so, Kyla, I'm curious. When you think about fast fashion, what are some of the brands that come to mind?
0: Primark, H&M, um, Forever 21.
1: Yep. Although I think they went bankrupt recently.
0: Did they? Oh. I think so. That explains the closing out sales I've seen for them in <laughs> other countries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, what what brands do you think of?
1: Yeah, so I think of those ones as well. Um, but then the big one that is also often talked about is Zara, because it was the brand that I sort was going to say
0: them! Yeah. Drat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, those are all fast fashion brands for sure. And Zara is sort of... It was sort of the first brand to move majorly into fast fashion, so oftentimes people will start their conversations about fast fashion by talking about them. Zara is also the world's largest fashion brand, and in 2018, it produced more than 450 million items. Whoa! That's in one year. Whoa! Whoa! Although Zara was sort of the first fast fashion brand, uh, a lot of other retailers are now on the same business model. Um, and basically what happens is that brands will take designs from top tier fashion designers and then they produce a cheaper version of it with a lot worse fabric and they'll sell it at low prices to middle market consumers. So they're not going for like the cheapest of the cheap, but they're marketing at like your average middle class consumer that kind of wants to buy fashionable clothes. um, But like previously, that would have been really expensive for them to do.
0: Yeah. So instead of paying like $150 for a shirt, you're paying $50 for a shirt.
1: Exactly. Or like 20, sometimes or 15, depending on the item. So it's called fast fashion, essentially, because production and sales have been sped up. Between 2000 and 2014, the number of garments doubled. So it's now 100 billion garments annually, which is pretty ridiculous.
0: In 14 years?
1: Yeah, in 14 years, it doubled. Now it's 100 billion annually. So if you think about that per person, that amounts to 14 new garments annually for each person on the planet. And realistically, it's not going to the entire planet. It's going to a much smaller section of people in wealthy countries.
0: Yeah, so it's way more than 14 garments then, really. Yeah, and then when we wear it three times, it gets shipped to
1: Africa where you can't like properly sell it and it just becomes garbage. Ah, but
0: ugh. spoiler
1: for the environment section. <laughs> so yeah, basically fast fashion means that we have a lot of bad quality clothes and we don't wear them for very long. So on on average, if you were to guess how many times the average consumer
0: wears clothes before they dispose of them, what would you guess? This is a statistic that I already hate. <laughs> um oh boy. 12 times.
1: You're pretty close, actually. It's seven times, which... What? (laughs) What? That's that's like half of what my guess
0: was.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's not very often, right? And that's the average. So, like, there are things that are getting worn much more, uh, much less than seven times. And some things that people don't wear at all at any point. So, (sighs) shoppers are buying five times more clothing than they used to in 1980. And uh, in 2018, the average consumer bought 68 new garments in a year. So, Whoa! Yeah, that's close to 70 new things we're buying every year, and we're wearing them seven times or less. And
0: wow, I don't like I'm, I don't want to make listeners like feel called out because I'm like reacting to this. I feel like it's one <laughs> of those things that people probably just don't realize you probably don't think that like, I've only worn this seven times, or I, I've bought 68 garments this year. That's not something you think about. So if this sounds like you, I'm sorry if my reactions are making you feel called out. Uh It's I am constantly shocked at like the amount of stuff that I am contributing to, which is what the point of this podcast is. So
1: yeah, and I think a lot of people so first of all, a lot of people don't realize how much they're buying and throwing out because we don't really think about it. But secondly, that's by design of the industry, right? Like, Fast fashion is explicitly set up to not produce good clothing. We're getting shitty clothing that's on trend and the industry is set up so we buy lots and lots of it, don't wear it for very long and then buy something new, right? If you're sort of seeing your own consumption habits in this, like you can think about how to change it and part 3 we'll talk about how you can go about that. But know that it's, first of all, it's not just you, it's lots of people. And secondly, know that, It's the industry making you do this, right? Like, they're really pushing you to to buy shitty clothes. To change the practices, we have to change the industry, basically. Yeah. Uh, The plus side of fast fashion, um, or the positive way to frame it, is that it's democratized fashion in a sense. So it's brought high design to regular consumers. But the, the downside is that that's, A, not really true, because we're buying shitty clothes. And B, it's caused a lot of problems. So let's talk about some of those problems. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So to just frame the problems with workers' rights, you also need to look at another set of changes that are happening at the same time as fast fashion, and that is the globalization of clothing supply chains. So that's often called offshoring, which basically means relocating factories to countries that have low labor costs. And so fast fashion doesn't work without offshoring, and offshoring is sort of like... It's spurred on because of the model of fast fashion, so those you really can't separate them. So I, I, I found a good stat, and that it's that in 1991, 56 percent of all clothes that were bought in the United States were also American made. By 20, or, or by uh, 2012, that was only 2.5 percent.
0: Whoa! So it went from over half to almost nothing. Three percent,
1: basically. Yeah. And the problem is today that. Supply chain isn't only offshore, so it's not only happening elsewhere in the world where you have less labor protections, but it's also fractured. So you'll have fabric that's grown and woven and dyed in one place, and then it's cut in another, sewn somewhere else, and then the zippers and buttons are being shipped everywhere. Elsewhere, yeah, and it's being shipped everywhere in between, right? So. Brands rarely own the factories that make their clothes as well, which is another problem. Because uh, now you've got like twelve companies to deal with in the supply chain, um, and that's before you count the fact that those suppliers will often, because of the tight timelines and low prices, they'll contract to subcontractors that are not very accountable and go out of business a lot. So it's very hard if you're. Oh yeah. This is not to let brands off the hook, but it can be very hard to keep track of your supply chains because oftentimes unauthorized subcontractors uh, will be doing really shitty things. And that's where a lot of the scandals
0: come out. So I used to work for a big fashion company. Uh, I used to work in the head office doing like admin for the women's wear department. So I have seen this from the back end a little bit where my job was to basically like, follow, like, well, I didn't follow up with suppliers, although I have done that with other jobs. I've been, I've done purchasing a lot in like industry, but in the fashion industry specifically, I was very aware of the fact that our clothes came from mostly Turkey, Bangladesh, in India, um, and a few from like Nepal. And we as a company, Obviously, cared that these workers were treated well because if they're not, then there can be a huge consumer backlash. And the company, just like a lot of retail companies, wasn't doing super great. But it was a super old company, so um, a couple of our competitors had like gone into bankruptcy in the last few years. So it's one of those things where I know that they cared, but they didn't care for the right reasons. They cared because they didn't want like a consumer backlash, which is fine. Do you know what? Whatever gets them caring.
1: Yes. But. The key is to care more as consumers and to change our
0: practices so
1: that that necessarily changes their mindsets.
0: The factories, yeah, they would subcontract and we can't really control the contractors. We're not hiring them. They're being hired by these factories. And we would do like spot checks and uh my, my manager would frequently go to India. But, you know, they know we're coming. So, of course, they're going to they're going to clean up. And I, I don't know that any of our factories were doing a bad job. Maybe maybe we had ethical factories, but. I wouldn't know that because it's really hard to check on.
1: Yeah, so that, I mean, the business model of fast fashion, offshoring, and also the fractured supply chain, those three things are basically in sum why everything we're about to talk about is shitty and why it's so hard to deal with.
0: From the perspective of my managers in this fashion company, where we were working with the suppliers directly, they cared. Like the people I worked with were good people. They didn't want our stuff coming from people who'd been exploited. But it's so much bigger than just like one or two people in the company, right? Like it's just, it's such a huge mechanism that just turns and turns.
1: (laughs) So, um, as we've sort of been previewing. Uh, This creates problems for workers' rights. Before we get into sweatshops, what I want to just talk about first is what the fashion industry supply chain looks like, because I think that can make things a little bit more concrete for people. So speaking in very general terms, the fashion industry has a six-stage supply chain. So first, you have to plant and harvest raw materials. So that could be cotton or wool or, you know. Any kind of fabric has to be grown or created or extracted. Then that fabric has to be weaved into cloth, basically. Step three is finishing the fabric, which can look like a lot of different things, um, and then shipping that cloth to distributors. In the next step, then the garments are produced, so they get cut and sewn and things like that. And then after that, they get shipped to the warehouse, and then they get distributed to storefronts. So there are six general stages, but within that, there's a whole bunch of things going on. And at any point in the supply chain, you can have exploitation issues. And it can be really hard because factories aren't owned by the big brands to keep them accountable. So sweatshops,
0: uh, when you think sweatshops, what do you think? Nike. (laughs) 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 I'm sorry, Nike. I know that they've come a long way, but that's like the first thing I think of is like the scandals of the 90s, right? Yes, yeah. And I mean, that's one incentive for brands to
1: sign on to initiatives that change things, because sometimes that brand
0: mentality can really stick. I would say, like, in Nike's defense, I think they're one of the big companies that have changed the most, but it's because they got the most backlash originally, I think, when people were starting to realize how messed up fast fashion is, but... It's what I think about. I also think about um what was was it in Bangladesh where that factory like exploded or something?
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but for sure that's in a lot of people's minds.
0: And I also think about yeah, children sewing stuff. That's what I think about when I think of sweatshops.
1: Yeah. Um so yeah, a lot of that's going on. Sweatshops, I also think sweat, right? Oh yeah. They're hot. That's why they're called that. Sweatshops have existed for basically as long as we've had mechanized garment industries, right? So in the 1830s, something called the lockstitch sewing machine was invented, and that really fundamentally changed how clothes were made. I don't know if, how much our listeners will know about the Industrial Revolution, um, but most people learn about it at least a little bit in school. And And basically, people were sort of moved from primarily living in rural areas and living sort of like subsistence agriculture to moving into cities, and working in factories. And one of the big industries behind this was actually the textile industry, so clothing and other kinds of fabrics. And cotton mills in particular were like nightmare landscapes. I, a lot of people
0: died. That's not good for your lungs to work in a cotton mill.
1: No, and actually like a lot of the the sort of big labor thinkers. So like, if you think about Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, the big communists, um, a lot of what they were writing about wasn't specifically in reaction to the conditions they saw in cotton mills, because they just saw death, mutilation, rape, illness happening all the time. And unfortunately, the sweatshops that we have today don't look super different from those sweatshops. Uh, I think it is at this point that we should have the first dad joke, <laughs> oh,
0: okay, let me see okay, so uh I did prep I prepped some some bad jokes, um but I also <laughs> prepped some pickup lines, so would you rather have would you rather be picked up or would you rather have a dad joke? What would you like to start with?
1: I think I would like to start by being picked up,
0: okay, are you from Tennessee because you're the only ten I see oh. <laughs> ah.
1: <Yeah. laughs> Why, thank you. (laughs) All right. Well, I feel like um, I'm at least 10% happier. So (laughs) another sort of historical incident that people might be familiar with is something called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire that happened in 1911. And it was a big fire that happened in a sweatshop in New York. And until 9-11, actually, it was
0: the largest disaster in that city. Whoa, really? Yeah. I think I should have known that because you were like in a play about this when we were in 10th (laughs) or 11th grade, weren't we? (laughs) This was like the play you were in. I went and saw it it one time. (laughs) (laughs) I had a solid Irish accent for that. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love 11th grade plays. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, So in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, 146 employees died. Um, 123 of them were women. This is another thread that we'll hear about throughout this episode. Most garment workers in the past and also today are women. So this is fundamentally a gender issue as well. So the good news is that sweatshops kind of got better for a while um, because during like the mid 20th century, you had a lot of labor activism that put in place legislation that protected workers. So a lot of the problems that you were seeing from the Industrial Revolution through to the early 1900s, ended, unfortunately, in the 1990s, offshoring started. And so those old style sweatshops came roaring back to life, just in a different location. So if we, if we look at some of the countries that are the major garment exporters today, um, a lot of them are Asian countries. So China is the top apparel supplier. Then there's also Bangladesh, India, Hong Kong, and Turkey. The EU is also one of the top suppliers, um, but not kind of the same issues. Different issues. Some workers' issues, for sure, but mostly when we're talking about sweatshops, we're talking about Latin America and Asia. So, sweatshops, they really suck.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> Is that the name of this section in your notes?
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, offshore sweatshops today don't look all that much different than the ones in the early Industrial Revolution. So they're hot, they're unsanitary, they're dusty, they're unsafe. There often isn't food or clean drinking water. Workers work for long hours, they get really low wages. They often don't get breaks, and they're often forced to work overtime for no pay. And buildings are often locked, which is really fucked, so you cannot
0: escape. What, from the outside? Uh Uh-huh. That's why so many people die in the fires. I was just gonna say that wouldn't pass a fire safety inspection (laughs) (laughs) anywhere. That's fucked. (laughs) I hate this. I hate all of these statistics. I'm making my own clothes from now on. Yeah. In some cases, workers aren't allowed to talk to each other at all. Yeah, because otherwise they'd uprise, probably.
1: Yeah. And since most workers are women and most supervisors are men, sexual assault and violence happens a lot
0: fuck this. But you know, the worst part is, is that if I make my own clothes, these guys aren't making any money. So like, what's the because if I take my business like away from them, then like, they can't feed themselves. So like, how do you how do you?
1: Ah, that's often the refrain. But I read a really good um, article basically arguing against that.
0: Oh, good. Please tell me.
1: Yeah, I, I can't remember the author, but it was basically talking about sweatshop conditions and he was saying actually workers that are in agriculture or other areas often have a lot better conditions so don't tell me that I should be grateful for being exploited which I think is a really good point like yes it's true that sweatshops provide jobs that is technically correct (laughs) but they are shitty jobs and they should be better and if that means we have to pay slightly more for clothes I think that should be the way it goes yeah Yep. Just to give people a little bit more context, I want to talk about a scandal that happened in the early two thousands. It basically it was a sweatshop in Honduras that was supplying clothes for clothing lines that Jay Z and P Diddy had. So the call out
0: there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like these guys are probably so far removed from the production of their own stuff that like they would have no idea. But also, that's problematic. You should know where your stuff comes they from. They shouldn't be. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Your name's yeah. on it, right? Like, you should care.
1: Exactly, yeah. So I'm just going to read a quick excerpt from the book Fashionopolis that um, talks about this incident. At a Senate Democratic Party committee hearing, Lita Elie Gonzalez, a 19-year-old Honduran garment worker, recounted through a translator the horrors that she had experienced at Southeast Textiles, or Cetiza. The industrial zone where Cetiza was located was surrounded by a towering wall Its entrance, a locked gate, guarded by armed sentries. Official hours were 7 a.m. to 4.45 p.m., at 75 to 98 cents per hour, but there was mandatory unpaid overtime. Just one shirt would pay more than my wage for a week, Gonzalez testified. Supervisors would stand over us, shouting and cursing at us to go faster and calling us filthy names like Maltito or Damned Donkey, Bitch, and worse, she continued. The temperature rose so high, workers were sweating all day. Fabric fibers and dust turned to hair, turned hair white or red or whatever the color of the shirts we were working on. The drinking water reportedly contained fecal matter. Workers were forbidden to speak. They could only use the restroom once in the morning and once in the afternoon, and before entering, they were searched. Normally, there was no toilet paper or soap. Women were subjected to pregnancy tests. If one came back positive, she'd be sacked. All were frisked upon entering in the factory each day, And anything found, including candy or lipstick, was confiscated. They were patted down again when they punched out at night. So this is what the conditions are like, you know. Thanks, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we do a dad joke?
0: (laughs) Yeah, okay, I I got one ready. Actually, this one is a little bit textile-related, so uh, let's pull this out. I bought some shoes from a drug dealer. I don't know what he laced them with, but I was tripping all day.
1: Get out of town. (laughs) Uh,
0: Did that lighten the mood? I still feel pretty sad.
1: Yeah. It did lighten the mood, though. I just think this is a sad subject.
0: (laughs) It is, yeah. You know what? I'm going to tell you one more. I'm going to tell you one more. I'm reading a book about anti-gravity. It's impossible to put down. (laughs) I thought you'd like that one. (laughs) (laughs) I get a sound a lot. Uh... All right. All right. All right. Tell me more. Yeah.
1: So in wealthy countries like the U.S. and Canada, actually sweatshops do sometimes still exist, unfortunately. Um, So while workers protections got rid of legal sweatshops, there are still illegal sweatshops and they're a hotbed for things like human trafficking. And then there are also factories that are just breaking the law and enforcement isn't really dealing with it. So sometimes you get a combination of
0: both in a sweatshop, which is... Great. Do you know what we could do is we could take some of these sweatshop jobs that are going to disappear because I'm making my own clothes. And we can put those people uh, into employment as enforcers for making sure that the rest of the garment industry is doing a good job.
1: Yeah, just hire more regulators.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hire them straight out of a sweatshop that's going out of business. Thank you very much.
1: Domestic sweatshops are in particular a problem in the states, um, and especially in Los Angeles um, because there's a large undocumented immigrant population there. And I mean, this is a threat in really every um, labor subject we cover on this podcast that like migrants are not well protected <laughs> in the United States, especially but anywhere, and they get exploited for that reason and it sucks. So about half the apparel manufacturing workers in L.A. are estimated to be undocumented workers, and they make about $4 a day. So, yes, most sweatshops that we're going to talk about are offshore, so they're not in wealthy countries. But there are sweatshops in wealthy countries, too, and they are also shitty. But let's talk about the Rana Plaza explosion. Um, which you had mentioned was one of the first things that came to your mind when we talked about sweatshops. And uh, I think that's probably true for a lot of people, but you might not know the details or maybe not everybody does know about it. So I just want to talk a little bit about it. Cool. So this is just to say that before we talked about the generally shitty working conditions of sweatshops, but in addition to that, there are still frequent sweatshop disasters that are on the level of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, or actually even bigger. And lots of people
0: die as a result. Well, if they're locked into a building that's on fire, then sure.
1: Uh-huh. Yep. And that is pretty much how it happens all the time. <laughs> oh, God. So um, one of the most famous disasters was the Rana Plaza incident that took place in Bangladesh in 2013. So basically what happened is on April 13th, 2013, there was an explosion at the Rana Plaza Garment Factory, and it ripped a hole in the wall. So when that happened, engineers were sent in, and the engineers wanted to condemn the building immediately, but the owner refused, so it remained open. And the next day, workers returned because they were afraid their pay would be docked if they didn't. Then the power went out sometime during the day. And as the backup generators went on, the building basically began to quake, and then it went down. I just want to read a couple of quotes from people that were affected.
0: Oh, but I think you warned me. This is So this is a, I think we should give a trigger warning here. Uh, Yeah. What you're about to read is is really really upsetting. So if you guys want to skip ahead by a minute or two, if you don't want to hear some really upsetting accounts of this terrible disaster, then no shame. We don't blame you. But I have to listen, so let's have it. (laughs) so
1: worker Shiva Begum was stuck and had to wait 16 hours for a rescue crew to remove her she says they showed up with iron rods and pipes and pried me out they said my guts were all over the place, I passed out and came to my senses 27 days later so this is the kind of injuries it can cause here's the second one, this one's worse so Mamadul Hassan Hridoy was inspecting jeans on the seventh floor when everything went dark and silent. The generators started, he recalled, and it felt like the floor under my feet was moving. Then it was disappearing. When he opened his eyes in the rubble, he realized he was pinned under a concrete pillar. As everything came into focus, he saw that he was face-to-face with one of his good friends, Faisal, who worked on the second floor as a showing machine operator. I'm not sure how, I told me in a whisper. I guess my floor dropped down to his. Faisal's skull was shattered, and his brains were spilling out. Frudoy began to cry. I can't forget how his head exploded in front of me, he said, sobbing. Those memories still haunt me. I bring up those two quotes just to sort of personalize the statistic that when the Rana Plaza disaster happened, 1,134 people died, and another 2,500 people were injured. So that is like 3,600 stories like that one. I don't know. It's just, for a lot of people, this, this was sort of a catalyzing moment. So there is something good that came out of it. But the really infuriating thing is that it was the third high-profile sweatshop disaster within three years in Bangladesh. So really, it should never have happened to begin with. Because we really should have acted the first two times. So in December 2010, there was a garment factory fire that killed 29 and injured more than 100. And Gap had just finished inspecting that factory. So their inspections clearly did not work. In November 2012, there was another fire that killed at least 117 and left 200 injured. And Sears, Walmart, and Disney all had products produced there. Overall, between 2006 and 2012, there were more than 500 Bangladeshi garment workers who died in factory fires. So there's absolutely no reason that Rana Plaza should have happened. There were already enough warning signs that the industry should have been moving on this. So after that fire in 2010, the first of the three major ones, there were NGOs that called for something, called for and created something called the Bangladesh Fire and Building Safety Agreement. It went unsigned until 2012. No brands signed on to this, even though there had already been a major disaster that should have been pulling at their consciences. Eventually, there was an ABC News story that came out, and so a few brands started to sign on, but most of the other ones didn't do it until after the Rana Plaza explosion. And even then, there were a number of brands that decided to go with a watered-down, voluntary version instead called the Alliance for Bangladesh Worker Safety. It was not as good, but a number of really major brands went with that one instead because they weren't serious about the commitments. Sorry, I haven't said much. It's just, this is all
0: super upsetting. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> it's just like, it's impossible to hear about the stuff without being super angry and upset about everything. I'm like on the verge of crying. You are crying. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry, Kyla. Kyla. I know, I'm really sad. (laughs) Those quotes were so sad. This was me while I was reading
0: it. No, that's fair. I mean, it just proves that I am a human with reasonable emotions. This is very upsetting.
1: Yeah. Maybe at this point, we should just say, listeners, if you're upset by this, that's totally okay. It's totally normal (laughs) to feel upset by the insane bullshit that companies let happen. It's just, it's important to know that, like, change can happen. So... Rana Plaza should make you angry and it should make you sad and disgusted, but it should also make you feel optimistic because the activism that it catalyzed actually has made a difference. So since Rana Plaza, most major brands started to sign on. It has started to shift industry standards. And um, Bangladesh has actually started to get better on inspecting buildings. It's still not perfect. And there still are factory fires that happen. But we're starting to very slowly see some progress. And the best way that you can sort of, I think, take in this information and assimilate it into your own approaches is to try to find brands that are trying on this kind of stuff. And we'll talk at the end about some sort of tools you can use for that. So we are going to get positive, we promise. (laughs) Should I give you
0: another joke now? Like, (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I've got one ready, uh, That I was thinking about you when I found this one. Ready? Love it. What does a zombie vegetarian eat? What? Grains. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I couldn't do the voice for it.
1: <laughs> I feel like you should be shoveling the driveway and telling me to,
0: like, drive more slowly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, okay, I'll give you one more. Love one more. It. One more joke. Okay. Love it, love it, love it. What's the best part about living in Switzerland? I mean, it's clearly raclette, but tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but the flag is a big plus. (laughs) Uh, That one is really dumb. (laughs) Okay, tell me some more stuff that's going to make me cry more.
1: Uh Uh-huh, yeah, so next we're going to talk about child labor. So unfortunately, that is also like sweatshops, Child labor has also been a thing going back to sort of early garment factories. And lots of sweatshops today have children working in them. So, for instance, in 2016, H&M, Next, and Esprit were found to have Syrian refugee children sewing and hauling bundles of clothes in subcontracted workshops in Turkey. Wait, what year did you say that was? 2016.
0: Fuck that. Fuck that. Fuck Fuck all of that. (laughs) Fuck everything.
1: Uh, yeah, so sometimes what happens is that children are basically lured from their homes to work in sweatshops, or I guess the parents are lured to give their children to sweatshops. Um, so there was a report by the Center for Research on Multinational Corporations and the India Committee for the of the Netherlands that basically found that uh, there are recruiters in southern India that would convince parents that are in impoverished rural areas to send their daughters to spinning mills. Um, And the promises are basically that they'd get a well-paid job, comfortable accommodation, three nutritious meals a day, opportunity for training and schooling, and a lump sum payment at the end of the three years. Oh, that sounds
0: fucking great.
1: Yeah, it does. Unfortunately, instead, uh, these were false promises, and the girls end up working under appalling conditions that basically amount to forced labor. That's what the report concluded. So Yeah, sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I felt like that's where the story was going, but like the promises, I can understand the parents' side of that.
1: Yes. So that's sometimes how this kind of stuff happens. And so Bangladesh, China, Egypt, India, Pakistan, Thailand, and Uzbekistan are particularly notorious for child labor in the textile and garment industry. I mean, this is not to say that anytime you see a made label there, it's definitely using child labor, but a lot of the times, I mean, those are the countries where it happens the most. Yeah.
0: And the point is, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know.
1: Even if you're buying from a supposedly sweatshop-free brand, it could be that brand could unknowingly have been produced by a subcontracted factory that uses child labor. Child labor, it occurs at different phases in the supply chain. So sometimes it can be the production of cotton seeds. Sometimes it can be cotton harvesting or yarn spinning, and sometimes it can actually be the, like, cut, make, trim garment production. So there was an investigation by um, SOMO, the Center for Research on Multinational Corporations, uh, that basically found that 60% of workers at spinning mills in India were under 18 when they started working there. It's a lot. Um, We'll also talk a little bit about Uzbekistan's cotton industry, uh, because it's particularly bad. So, the problem with Uzbekistan's cotton industry that makes it particularly bad, in addition to just any kind of child labor is bad, is that it's actually state sponsored.
0: Cool. So, mm -hmm, government approved. Cool, cool, cool. Big thumbs up from the guys in charge. Amazing. (laughs) I love it. Just kidding. I hate
1: everything. Yeah. So, yeah, every year, basically, one million people, and that includes children, like children as well as teachers and doctors. They're basically dumped into Uzbekistan's cotton fields to pick cotton. And they're taken from their jobs and their schools. They're sometimes threatened with expulsion or dismissal or even physical violence. And they're compelled to meet quotas to help the government earn money. It's a somewhat unique case of actually state-sanctioned mass mobilization of child labor. Um, And basically, the way it works is like the Uzbekistan government sets cotton quotas And if farmers don't fill their quotas, they can actually be kicked off of their land. So it's a big deal if you don't meet your cotton quota. What? Yeah, but farmers are poor and they can't afford extra farmhands for harvest. So state and local officials will often order employees of the government, uh, like doctors and nurses, as well as students to go into the field so that farmers can meet their quotas. A study that was done at the University of London uh, found that between 86 and 100% of the schools in districts that they studied uh, were subject to compulsory recruitment of children in grades 5 to 9. So that's ages 11 to 14. And the students were employed in the cotton harvest for between 51 and 63 days with outbreaks and under unsanitary, unhealthy, and unnutritious conditions so.
0: No, and cotton is one of the fabrics that I was like looking for because I don't know if we'll have released it by the time this episode comes out, but we did a laundry episode (laughs) and synthetic fibers are really bad for the environment. So it's like, oh, I'll only buy natural fibers from now on. Cotton's a really easy one to find and you can get good clothes, but it turns out it's maybe worse. So cool.
1: Yeah, it depends on where you get your cotton from, but yeah. So if you want to avoid this, the Responsible Sourcing Network has basically, they've gotten 314 companies to pledge to eliminate Uzbekistan cotton from their supply chains. So if you go to the research notes for this episode, I've got a link there and you can click the link to actually see the, the list of companies that have signed on to this pledge. Um, otherwise, you can just Google Responsible Sourcing Network in Uzbekistan cotton, it'll come up. And so as a result of those advocacy efforts, there's been a lot done, and you can actually exercise a choice to not have state-sponsored child slavery in your cotton supply chain, if not really anything else. (laughs) That's at least one thing you can concretely do. So a couple of brands that haven't signed on, American Apparel hadn't signed on as of December 2019, nor had Polo Ralph Lauren. I also did not see Roots Canada on the list, but it is possible they're, like, under some other company. So, I'm just going to give me pause next time I go there. So, yeah, there are other cases of child labor that's important to remember. Um, the Uzbekistan case, I just wanted to talk about specifically because it is um, state-sponsored, and that's really fucked. Yeah. Um, should we do another
0: pickup line, maybe?
1: <laughs> yeah, you got it, man. <laughs> Say nice things about me, Ken. Yeah, coming up,
0: <laughs> coming up. Uh... <laughs> Kristen, if you were a Transformer, you'd be Optimus fine. Ooh,
1: I would be Optimus fine. I think the only other Transformer I can name is Bumblebee. Is that a real Transformer? Yep.
0: Yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah. Uh, those those are the only it. two. Those are also the only two that I can name. Uh, there's a bad guy. And we've also
1: officially talked about bees in this podcast.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel like we need to drop <laughs> it in at least every episode now. It's like a, it's yeah, like a it's running our thing. Egg, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bees. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you one more pickup line. I love it. Yeah. I think we should do two because uh, this is deeply upsetting. Um, okay. It's a good thing I brought my library card because I am totally checking you out. <laughs> I did some finger guns there. <laughs> it's nice
1: because it's a nice pickup line, but it also promotes the use of libraries,
0: yeah, yeah, I thought that you would appreciate that one for sure, <laughs> okay, make me sad again. Let's have it,
1: yeah, so i we're coming to the end of the sad stuff, but there's a couple more to cover,
0: so forced labor is also.
1: Big in the fashion industry. Fashion industry is one of the biggest sources of modern slavery. So the Walk Free Foundation estimates that 127.7 billion US dollars worth of garments are imported annually by G20 countries um, that are at risk of having modern slavery involved in their production. So that's a lot. A lot, if you look at sort of like the causes of modern slavery, a lot of them look kind of similar to the some of the child's, uh, labor
0: circumstances that we talked about like debt bondage not having contracts things like that but being given promises that they think sound really good and it's not the case at all
1: yeah and then they get moved to somewhere where they can't really escape so i won't talk too much more about that because they're locked in all the time oh so I'll, i will just say that uh <laughs> i was surprised that this came up but i i don't know if you had heard about what China's doing in Xinjiang province with their Uyghur population. That's a lot of jargon. Uh, so the Chinese government has a, a Muslim minority in, primarily in a region called Xinjiang, um, and they're often referred to as Uyghurs. There's been a lot of coverage in the news lately about these re-education camps that they've been forced into. There's questions about whether it's they're really concentration camps and
0: whether there's a genocide going on there. I have vaguely heard about this. I'm excited to learn more from you now. (laughs) Yeah,
1: so I was surprised to know uh, that they are also operating forced labor camps in Xinjiang, and uh, they're producing, among other things, clothing there. So basically what happens is Uyghurs are detained in re-education camps, and they're either while they're there forced to work in factories, or afterwards they're sort of released on condition of working in these factories. Brands so far have not, have said that they haven't found evidence that the labor in these factories are forced, but journalists hard disagree with this. So. Sure. Okay. You know, we've gotten our liability out of the way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Please don't add us. Journalism suggests (laughs) that it is probably forced. This is an unbiased podcast with no opinions of our own. Please don't add (laughs) us. Big companies don't come at us. (laughs)
1: do get fisticuffs Yeah
0: yeah okay Kristen's ready to fight you can add her
1: <laughs> um, yeah So yeah the last the last harm of the garment industry for workers I want to talk about is just quickly women's rights and sexual assault. Just to remind everybody that this is fundamentally a gender inequality issue and that approximately 80% of the workers in the garment industry are women between the ages of 18 and 35. It's mostly women. So that means that all of the exploitation we're talking about, like that itself is a gender issue because it's mostly happening to women. But in addition to that, rape, sexual assault and sexual harassments they're big problems in sweatshops. So a study done in Vietnamese factories found that 43% of women that were interviewed had suffered at least one form of violence or harassment in the last year. So that's not over time. That's half of them in the last year have experienced this. Another study by ActionAid looked at garment workers in Bangladesh and found that 80% have either seen or directly experienced sexual violence or harassment in the workplace. So that's almost
0: everybody. Cool. I hate all of yeah. this.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, we hate everything. So why is everything so shitty? <laughs> I just It's fast fashion in the fractured supply chain, right? So when Disasters and abuses happen. Brands often claim that they aren't responsible and that the sweatshops in question weren't authorized suppliers, and that makes it really hard to deal with. Basically, the way it works is brands will have approved suppliers, and those approved suppliers will subcontract to sweatshops. And then when a scandal happens, brands that claim to be sweatshop free will often claim that they had no idea that their contractors were subcontracting, even though it happens all the time. Well, and also
0: like sometimes they have no choice but to subcontract because the fast, fast, uh, the fast fashion industry is so huge that the companies that they do source can't keep up with the demand, right? So they have to subcontract in order to fulfill the orders that are being placed for them.
1: Yeah. So next question, are things getting better? Not really, is the short answer. So these problems are really fundamental to how fast fashion works. There's a need to get clothing that's made really quickly and really cheaply. And as a result, people in the environment inevitably suffer. Having said that, there have been some changes. So the first industry shift was a move towards supplier codes of conduct. So that started to happen actually in the 1990s. And uh, the first Code of Conduct in the fashion industry was from Levi Strauss in 1992. Oh, good for them. Yeah, and there actually has been a lot going on in that. Now, like, most major brands will have supplier codes of conduct, and they will have audits that enforce the codes for their authorized suppliers. Didn't you
0: tell me is, off, uh, Mike, at one point, though, that the jean industry is so fucked up, we have to do a whole episode on it, so maybe uh-huh. I shouldn't praise Levi so quickly.
1: <laughs> no, although... um. The reading that I've done suggests they were one of the better brands, then briefly really sucked, and now again are one of the better brands. So oh, okay.
0: Okay, good for you, Levi. <laughs> yeah,
1: so spoiler for a jeans episode we'll do at some point in the future. Uh, yeah, so there, there are now audits, there are now codes of conduct, so there's something happening. These audits aren't perfect, though, partially because the monitors themselves don't have any oversight, so, like, bribery happens, and audits are often not... Like, they're often scheduled so workers can coach their factories and, like, clean things up. But, hey, there's progress. In 1998, only 15% of company codes included freedom of association and the right to collectively bargain. And now almost all of them do. So the codes of conduct cover more things, and activists and consumers are really pushing companies to actually do real audits and to have real consequences for the suppliers when they fail the audits. And another big move is transparency. So if people remember from our very first episode, uh, Fashion Revolution produces a transparency index. That's basically about who's being transparent in things like having supplier lists, right? And so just in general, it's becoming more common for brands to publish supplier lists, and that's a huge part of the solution. So how can you act to promote human rights in the clothing industry? First, you can kind of get involved with activists that are working on these issues. So I've mentioned a bunch throughout this podcast. You could be involved with any of those. That Fashion Revolution is, I think, a cool organization. You can check out their transparency index, participate in Fashion Revolution Week, um, or participate also in, they've got a social media movement called um, Hashtag Who Made My Clothes and Hashtag I Made Your Clothes. So you can check those out. And uh, if you're interested in fashion, then they have a fashion open studio that's a cool initiative you might want to get involved with. And then uh, there's Fairwear, which is an organization that's working to promote worker and human rights in garment production. So they focus on that sewing, cutting, trimming part of garment production, uh, which isn't the whole part of the supply chain, but it's an important part. And it's the most labor intensive. And so they have a code of labor practices that 133 brands have signed, and you can check them out. You can also check out that um, Uzbekistani Cotton Pledge to make sure that the companies you're buying from aren't sourcing child slave labor that's state-sanctioned.
0: I like that. That's a nice way to, <laughs> um, I assume we're almost done, to tie it up, is to have some optimistic, like, steps that can be taken, because this was dark.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll learn m- about more concrete steps you can take in part three of this series. But yeah, at least that's something for now.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna end with one more um, bad joke. Why do chicken coops only have two doors? I don't know. Why? Because if they had four, they would be chicken sedans. (laughs) Ha! You're welcome.
1: (laughs) Love it. So glad you did the dad jokes.
0: So in part two of our clothing episode, we're going to be looking at the environment, which is hopefully a little bit less depressing. Kristen's going to rev this one up for me. Let's have it. Sure. Yeah.
1: So we'll talk about clothing and the environment this episode. And then just a reminder that we're going to be doing a third part as well that looks at uh, what it means to have a conscious closet. So that's where you'll have a lot of those practical tips. So the environmental impact of clothing, it basically comes from three different parts of the production process. So first you can look at the impact of producing the fabrics from which clothing is made. Then you can look at the impact of moving those fabrics around, turning them into garments and selling them. And then you can look at the impact of clothing disposal. So we're going to talk a little bit about all of those things, but because this is such a complicated topic, I I focused a little bit more on looking at different fabrics because otherwise there are sort of just general points you can make about the environment. And in the last episode, we're going to talk about the end life of clothing. So just a just note that there will be more attention
0: to the fabrics in this episode. I appreciate that because I feel like that's something we have more control over as consumers. You can decide what fabric to buy. And I have been stressing out for the last, I don't know, two, three months. Honestly, maybe even since we started this podcast project, uh, like, what, four, five, six months ago? What even is time? But I don't know what the best (laughs) fabric to buy is. And I haven't Googled it because I am a hack and a fraud. So I'm just waiting for (laughs) you to tell me. (laughs) No,
1: it honestly, it was it was hard to put together the information on this. And so I was sort of like cobbling stuff together through various internet links. And then there was a chapter in this book that I read that pulled it all together really nicely. So a lot of the information is from the book, The Conscious Closet, which we'll cover also in the last part, but some of it's from the internet as well, just to fill out gaps. So the two most commonly used fabrics in clothing today are, col- are cotton and polyester. Um, and they make up, Basically three quarters of the global fiber market. So Whoa,
0: that's a lot. Yeah.
1: I don't think I knew that. Yeah, so cotton and polyester, like if you look at your clothes, probably most of your items have some level of cotton or polyester in them. So it it would be impossible for us to cover all of the fabrics that are enclosed this episode because there are just so many. But I wanna give a brief overview of like what to think about for each of the main ones. And so, of course, we're going to talk about both of those big ones, polyester and cotton. We'll also talk about some of the other common synthetics that you might find, like spandex and nylon. And then viscose or rayon is also one that's made from tree fibers, basically, and uh, wool and linen and hemp. So we'll cover all of those, talk about sort of what are the environmental considerations and also what some of the things that you can look for when you're trying to buy these fabrics are, because... Um, so I mentioned that book that was really helpful, The Conscious Closet, and the author of that book, she basically says when you're thinking about picking the, the most sustainable clothing, it's not necessarily about which fabric, it's about how to make which fa- whichever fabrics you pick the most sustainable versions of themselves, because there are sort of benefits and drawbacks to all of them. The, uh, the exception to that is like linen and hemp. There's a reason hippies have worn those for years. They're pretty sustainable. So <laughs> that one, if you are if you just want to buy the most sustainable fabrics, yeah, you could adorn yourself in only hemp. That's probably <laughs> the best choice. <laughs> but probably not very many of us are going to want to do that. So we'll give you some other suggestions too. So polyester, it's like polyester is basically synonymous with fast fashion. It's everywhere... Polyester is present in 60% of clothing today. Um, and there has been a 157% increase in the use of polyester between 2000 and 2016.
0: So, whoa. Yeah, it's pretty You can awesome. really tell that fast fashion is a product of the last 25 years. <laughs> like, holy <Yeah>. shit.
1: <laughs> it's kind of like this is a bit of a nerdy aside, but like the shift from like homestead clothing making to like the industrial clothing making, it was like wool to cotton. And now the new era of fast fashion is polyester. So you can really see that through like what fabrics are common. So like the rest of the synthetic fabrics industry, polyester is high tech and it's highly concentrated. So more than 75% of the world's polyester fabric is made in China. So just one country makes a lot of the world's polyester. Another thing that probably some of our listeners know already, but it's important to say Polyester is plastic. So it's made from fossil fuels, it's not renewable, and it contributes to climate change. So overall, polyester is not a good environmental choice. Um, and also, the demand for polyester and other plastics drives up investment in petrochemical refining. So, in a certain sense, the more polyester clothes we're, we're wearing and buying, the more economical it is for fossil fuel producers to keep producing fossil fuels. So that's a problem. Polyester also has a huge waste problem. So because it is plastic, it doesn't readily biodegrade. And so we really don't have any plan for what to do with this massive volume of polyester that we're producing. And so right now, only a very small amount of it is like recycled polyester. Um, And most of the time when you're using polyester that's from recycled plastic it's actually not from polyester that's been recycled it's from like water bottles that have been recycled so the polyester that we're producing in clothes that we throw away very quickly it's basically just going to landfill most of the time um, and also uh, shout out to our laundry episode where we talked about <laughs> the plastic microfibers
0: that we'll have to actually release that episode soon <laughs> But every time you wash your clothes, microplastics are leaching into the environment is the sum of what that whole episode really came down to.
1: Yeah. In in the, the book, The Conscious Closet, Elizabeth Klein recommends basically finding non-toxic polyester. Um, so there, there are hazardous substances certifications that I'll talk about sort of at the end. And uh, you, looking for one of those is a good way to know that Hazardous toxic toxins haven't been used in making the polyester. There's a really big problem across the clothing industry, but especially for synthetics. Um, and another good strategy if you are buying polyester is to look for recycled polyester. So Timberland and Patagonia are two brands that do produce items with recycled polyester. So you can look for them. I generally just love Patagonia.
0: <laughs> I know, it's your favorite. You can talk about that laundry episode too. <laughs> probably. We've probably talked about this several
1: times. Uh, this is an on-the-sly Patagonia-like-branded podcast.
0: No, <laughs> yeah, oh man. If they want to pay us, though, we could easily become one. I have never... I think we talked about this, but I've never used... I've never bought anything from Patagonia, so I feel left out of this. Uh, so if they want to send me a sweater or something, I am. I can be bought very easily. <laughs> this podcast is not above bribery. <laughs>
1: All right. Let's talk about other synthetics. Um, can you think of any synthetic fabrics other than polyester?
0: Oh, um, metallized fiber. I see that a lot. I don't know. Oh
1: gosh, I don't talk about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, probably. <laughs> other synthetics. You said viscose and rayon aren't synthetic. I didn't, I don't think I knew that. Uh, oh, I know. Acrylic. Acrylic. Yes. Uh, so some other
1: ones that you might see are spandex, nylon, polyurethane, and PVC, which I can't remember what that stands for.
0: That's okay. Probably unpronounceable.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's PVC. Don't buy it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there are a variety of synthetic fibers in clothing, and they're all slightly different, and it would be way too much detail to cover each of them. But nylon is sort of the one that you'll see most commonly. It's in about 5% of clothing, and uh, that makes it the second most common synthetic fabric. But obviously, like, polyester is way more common, so there's a big gap. After that, the next most common is acrylic. So it's present in about 2% of clothing, and you'll often see acrylic as, like, a cheap alternative to wool. So if you're looking at sweaters in fast fashion...
0: They're always acrylic. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) And then uh, spandex, basically, it's it makes stuff stretchy. So you'll often see it, like, in a blend in, like...
0: Underwear. Jeans or... Pajamas. Other things.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure the skinny jeans I'm wearing right now have spandex in them. I way. mean,
0: I'm wearing pajamas right now, and I'm sure that it's, like, 60% spandex. They're so stretchy. <laughs> That's why I love pajamas.
1: <laughs> pajamas are great. This is a pro-pajama
0: podcast. <laughs> yeah, wait till we get to the end of this episode and we talk about our challenge. No kidding, yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> So um
1: most synthetics have a problem with like carcinogenic materials and they also seem to take a lot of energy to make. That seems to be common to most synthetic materials.
0: Wait, so do my clothes give me cancer? Is that what you're saying or just the people who work in the factories are the ones? Yeah, maybe. Legitimately Yikes. they
1: might. Yeah. So this is why the like uh safe chemicals or like hazardous toxins certifications can be really important because um sometimes synthetics will be made with hazardous materials that, or they'll be made with chemicals that have been either found to be probable carcinogens or um, where there have been links established, but science is just kind of like slow in catching up um, because the regulation was kind of really fucked up. I went through a whole rabbit hole in this. But if you use those sort of safe chemical certifications, you can, you can to some degree limit the extent to which that's something that affects you. That's wild. I had no idea. Yeah, I me mean, neither. And I have a lot of polyester in my wardrobe. So. so, yeah, one strategy to deal with the carcinogenic materials is to look for safe chemistry labels and um, to also look for um, another way is to look for recycled synthetics. That's another way to be more environmentally friendly. Oh, here we go. I, I did write what PVC stands for. <laughs> <laughs> I love a throwback. Let's have it. (laughs) Um, So it's a polyvinyl chloride or PVC. So the recommendation from the Conscious Closet is just don't buy anything with PVC in it. I think PVC is often used in like fake leather products. Exactly. Yeah. And vinyl. So it uses a chemical that's linked to endocrine disruption. So it'll like fuck with your hormones and stuff.
0: Whoa, really?
1: Yeah. So... The recommendation from Elizabeth Klein is just don't buy anything with PVC in it. and for- Get rid of
0: your pleather pants. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> there are multiple reasons to do that, but yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that is some shade. <laughs> <laughs> okay, carry on.
1: All right. So cotton. Cotton's the other big fabric that we use a lot of. Uh, It makes up about a quarter of global fiber production, so the majority of it is grown in China, India, and the United States. Those are the biggest cotton producers. Although, throwback to the last episode, Uzbekistan is definitely the most fucked up producer. It's not Mm -hmm. one of the biggest ones. That we know of. (laughs) That's true, that we know of. (laughs) And cotton can be really tricky to grow, so usually it's farmed with a lot of pesticides and fertilizer, so that can be a problem. Cotton actually uses 6% of all pesticides that are used. So it's it uses more pesticides than any other major crop. Whoa! And, uh, yeah, yeah. And 20% of insecticides are devoted to producing conventional cotton, even though it's grown on only 2.5% of the world's arable land. Why? So. Why? It's, I think it's because it's really hard to grow. That seems to be what I found. And that's a problem because... A lot of the pesticides that are used for cotton have been classified by the WHO as hazardous. So again, you're potentially poisoning workers, you're potentially poisoning the land around where cotton is grown, and also the waterways and communities around there. So it's a, it's a big problem. Another problem environmentally with cotton is that 99% of all cotton is genetically modified, now, I want to be clear and say that not all genetically modified things are evil, but there are some particular problems with how cotton is genetically modified. So the first one is that genetic engineering has basically turned cotton from a perennial crop to being an annual crop, which basically means that it like it will produce the fluff like every year rather than only on the second year. And that has really increased the yields for farmers, so that might be good, but there's also some evidence that it fucks with soil and um, over time is going to make it sort of less sustainable to grow.
0: Well, and as climate change affects farmland, we're going to have less arable land anyways because Uh growing seasons are going to change. All right, what a fun topic. Yeah, so we talked
1: about how one genetic modification fucks with the soil by turning cotton from a perennial into an annual. Uh, but there's actually like another genetic modification that makes it even worse. Um, and well, it doesn't make it worse, but because, because pesticides are so overused in cotton or they're used so much, um, basically, Monsanto introduced Roundup ready cotton. It basically allows you the cotton plant to endure really heavy spraying of Roundup. And Roundup basically kills everything except for the cotton. It is not good for the planet. Um, And so, yeah. Yeah, so genetic modification, like most of the time when you're getting cotton, unless it's organic, it's going to be genetically modified. And even though that in general, like in principle, it's not bad to have something genetically engineered. In the ways that they're engineered with cotton production, like you now have a system where people have to pay well, it's now Bayer that's bought out Monsanto, but like you would have had to pay Monsanto for both the pesticides that they're selling and
0: also the cotton that can survive the pesticides that they're selling. It's fucked. That is bonkers. (laughs) What even is real life? I can't.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so another problem with cotton is that, and people have probably heard this before, but it's a really like thirsty plant. It uses a lot of water. So growing one kilo of conventional cotton requires 10,000 liters of water, and uh, processing cotton requires even more. So it's about 5,000 gallons for a t-shirt and a pair of jeans.
0: Whoa!
1: Yeah, it's a lot. The good news is that you can actually produce organic cotton that's way less water intensive, and I don't know why, but it can be up to ninety-one percent less irrigated water than conventional cotton. What? So, that doesn't. That make just any seems sense. like a clear win. Yeah. No
0: pesticides, like much lower water usage. I don't know. It must be more expensive, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. The other thing with like what, um, cotton using so much water is that like most of the cotton that's grown, so about 60%, is grown in water-scarce regions. So (laughs) we're going to travel quickly back to Central Asia, or if you all remember the Uzbekistan situation, there's another problem, which is the Aral Sea in Central Asia used to be the world's fourth largest lake, but today it's basically completely dried up. And that's basically because of cotton. So It started with the Soviets. In the 1950s, the Soviets started to use the rivers that feed into the Aral Sea to irrigate its surrounding agricultural area. Um, And that is something that still happens today. And uh, it's primarily for cotton is is what it's irrigating. And that's a really big problem because as the Aral Sea has dried up, because the Aral Sea actually is salt water, even though the rivers that feed into it are fresh water. So as it's drying up, it's releasing salts and carcinogens into the air, which is causing like throat cancer and respiratory diseases. So like cotton production in this area is really fucking up people and their livelihoods. Um, It's a real
0: ecological problem. Like even even when they're not employed in the like bondage (laughs) situation that we discussed in the first episode where state mandated children's labor is happening even if you're not involved in that you still can't get away from the fact that the cotton industry is causing throat cancer that's not cool and so like this is the
1: most stark situation of that but in general cotton is grown in places where there's water scarcity and that can cause problems for the populations around it too right
0: well is it time for a joke because i feel sad (laughs) sure yeah so you guys uh who listened to the first episode will know that i prepped some terrible jokes and pickup lines to lift the episode when it gets a little bit heavy uh so now i'm gonna drop the first one of this episode we're gonna start with a pickup line lay it on me all right Kristen, baby if you were words on a page you'd be fine print (laughs) i picked up a lot of book uh, pickup lines because i i think i feel like that's what would work on me (laughs) (laughs) um and i will tell you a joke all right what do you call a dog that can do magic i don't know (laughs) a labracadabra door
1: oh that's so cute
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay i'm ready for more sad stuff
1: (laughs) yeah Well, actually, we'll just wrap up cotton next. Um, So we talked about some of the problems with cotton. So pesticides, uh, hazardous chemicals, uh, genetic modifications that make them reliant on pesticides, and also the fact that it uses a lot of water. So what can you do about it? One thing that you can do is go for organic cotton. And so there are a couple of different labels that we'll talk about at the end that you can look for for that. And you can also look for fair trade cotton, which uh, won't use hazardous pesticides. It will use pesticides, but not the ones that will poison workers. So small victories and also pays farmers a fair wage. So look for those two labels. You can also find recycled cotton from brands that are members of the Better Cotton Initiative. Um, sorry, recycled cotton and cotton that are from brands that are members of the Better Cotton Initiative. Um, we're gonna have to do an episode on Better Cotton Initiative though, because it's received some criticism. Not sure how good that label is, but better than nothing, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's the refrain of our Tell show.
1: Me
0: the pick up line. <laughs> <laughs> that's like our whole show. Better than nothing, I guess. Okay, I've got one more pickup line for you. That's really good. Okay. okay, is this the Hogwarts Express? Because it feels like you and I are headed somewhere magical. Nice. So, the next
1: set of fabrics you may have heard labeled as viscose or rayon. Uh, I'm going to call it cellulosic fabric, which is less sexy for sure, uh, but it is slightly more accurate. Cellulosic fabric can show up in labels in a variety of ways, so it can show up as viscose, it can show up as rayon, you might also see it as bamboo, modal, lyocell, eucalyptus, or tencel. Those are all cellulosic fabrics. Some of these are identical. Some of them are slightly different. But basically, all of these fabrics are made by chemically dissolving wood from eucalyptus, beech, or bamboo trees. And then basically, the chemical pulp is then reformed into a fiber. So that's why when you ask, like, is rayon a synthetic? And I was kind of just like, eh. It's kind
0: of, I don't know. Like, I feel like I should know... Like, I've worked in the fashion industry, and also I used to work uh, for, like, a company that sold bedding, so I had to know what the difference was between, like, viscose bamboo or, like, rayon or cotton, but I feel like I still, like... I, I I just still don't understand it. And I remember once looking into whether bamboo fabric, because I've always really liked the idea of bamboo fabric. And I remember once a few years ago, I was like, oh, I wonder if it actually is better. And I looked into it and I was upset with whatever I read. That's all I remember.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of confusing whether it counts as a synthetic or not, because it's not really a natural fiber, but it's also made from wood pulp. So, like, I don't know. You decide. <laughs> <laughs> decide what you think counts. So most of the cellulosic fabrics that are on the market, about 70%, are viscose slash rayon, which are the same thing. They're just sometimes different. I think generally you'll see viscose. You see viscose. Viscose and rayon, one of them is commonly in European labels, and the other is commonly in North American labels, oh. and I can't remember which. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, But otherwise, they're the same. So... Cellulosic fabric, um, it's essentially like a cheaper cousin to silk or cotton. That's typically what you'll see it being used as. Um, and it's also often marketed as ecologically conscious or sustainable, even though in some cases it is really, really not. So, especially with cellulosic fibers, you have to be careful about greenwash. There are actually some forms of cellulosic fibers that can be a lot more sustainable. So lyocell is one, but Oftentimes, if it's just labeled as like eucalyptus or bamboo, that does not necessarily mean it's sustainable. So cellulose fibers, they take a lot of energy to produce and the materials have a higher greenhouse gas impact than manufacturing polyester or cotton for like the more standard ones. Um, And they also produce a lot of waste. So basically 70% of the tree that's used, it like actually just gets totally wasted in the manufacturing process. So you're only using about 30% of the trees that you're cutting down.
0: What I hate that I know it sucks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it gets worse. Oh no. Oh, no. Yeah. So cellulosic fabric fabric is also it's driving deforestation, and that includes for ancient and endangered forests. They're often being used in the manufacture of these products. So that includes the Amazon and Indonesian rainforests, and it also includes Canada's boreal forests and the Great Bear Rainforest. Which, fuck that noise, those are beautiful forests. <laughs>
0: who, who, who's making clothes out of the boreal forest? Why?
1: Yeah, like a lot of producers. Um, but the good news is there's an NGO called Canopy that's on it. Um, and they're basically working with clothing companies. They've gotten Levi Strauss, Marks & Spencer, H&M, and a bunch of other brands to commit to not sourcing from ancient forests.
0: So, but, like, at the rate that we're producing clothes, how can you not? Like, at what point do we just <laughs> run out of other trees and we have to go to the older stuff?
1: Yeah, well, I think, like, part of the problem is just going to the ancient forests when there are other options available. But, yeah, but, yeah it does still drive deforestation anyway. So if you are concerned about deforestation and you still want to buy cellulosic fabrics, one thing to look for is either... Look for brands that are working with canopy that shows that they're working at least not to use ancient forests. Or you can actually get brands that are members of the Forest Stewardship Council, which is um, a sustainable forestry label. And I, I'm sure we'll do an episode on them in some point in the future, but that's, that's something you can concretely do. Another thing that you might want to do if you're worried about the environment, but you also want cellulosic fabrics, is you can look out for Lyocell, which is also called Tensil. Um, And it's the most sustainable version of cellulosic fabric. And again, as with a lot of the other fabrics, you can look for safe chemical certifications and you can uh, buy brands
0: that are working with NGOs. It's usually helpful. I will say that I recently had to buy new underwear because occasionally (laughs) I have to do that. And my favorite underwear is from H&M. Uh, It just fits the best. You know how you just... You find a pair, you just find underwear, and you're like, this is the best fit. It's the most comfortable. It's, like, made of cotton, which is apparently deeply problematic. (laughs) But what I did, because I knew we were about to do this episode, is I specifically bought from their, like, sustainable organic cotton line for underwear. And maybe it's greenwash, but I will say, like, I've always been kind of impressed with H&M's website. Whenever you go, it's always, like, they know that this is what people... (laughs) Yeah, they know what people yeah. care about because, like, as soon as you go to their website, it's like, "Oh, this organic cotton was sourced from these countries, and it has these fair trade labels yeah. or whatever." And I always appreciate that as a consumer, but also I recognize that H and M is one of the worst fast fashion brands, and they're l- leading into the problems that they're trying to solve. Yeah,
1: but you're right; they are like, they are at least doing some things. So, th- is that better than nothing i guess <laughs>
0: <laughs> so i did buy some underwear from a big corporation that is perhaps evil um but i needed underwear and i tried to buy like the organic cotton stuff so like is that better i don't know i guess the better thing for me to do would have been to sew my own underwear but we are not at that level yet with my sewing capabilities yeah and i think <laughs>
1: that, like um with stuff like that you like you're just going to need to get underwear and you're just going to have to go through it fairly regularly. So yeah, trying to find a big brand that's doing better than other big brands isn't a bad approach, you know? Anyway, uh, let's talk about, so I've got wool, leather, and fur all lumped in together. And basically what I want to say about this is that we're not going to talk about them too much um, because we're going to do an entire leather episode for sure. We'll probably also do a down episode and we just did an entire month on like animal welfare with veganism and vegetarianism. So we'll give you guys a break from the animal welfare stuff. Uh, <laughs> but it's a thing. Um, and with leather, also important to know that there's a big carbon, water, and land use footprint. So just worth mentioning, but we'll do a whole episode on leather later. I I will talk about wool a little bit more because it's a little bit tricky, actually. So wool can be super sustainable or it can be really bad for the environment. And a lot depends on where it's produced and how the animals are raised. So most wool that's on the market, about 95% is sheep's wool, but there's also other animals that can be used for wool. And another sort of fairly common one is cashmere, which uses goats, not necessarily all sheep. Depending on uh, how sustainable the wool farm is, it can cause erosion when soil erosion when animals are overgrazing. So it really depends. As well, another concern with wool is that to clean raw wool, um, it creates a huge quantity of wastewater. So processing the wool has got a big water footprint. It's thirsty. It's thirsty. Yeah. Uh, And then there's also, because it's animal farming-based, it produces a lot of methane because...
0: <laughs> Sheep be farts farting. ...farts and birds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, That will never not make me laugh. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's all, like, the downsides of wool. But on the other hand, wool actually lasts a lot longer than most other fabrics. So it's, like, not necessarily bad environmentally to use wool. Uh, one recommendation is to sort of focus on buying wool products that are timeless and making sure that you mend them so that they last as long as possible because there is a big upfront environmental cost, but they can, wool fabrics can last a lot longer than other garments can. And as with the other fabrics, you can also improve your footprint by buying organic and also buying Safe Chemicals certified wool. All right, the last category of fabrics are bast fibers, also known as the best fibers. So linen, (laughs) hemp, jute, ramy, and flax. I'd never heard of ramy. I don't know what that is, um, and I didn't
0: find out, so. (laughs) (laughs) But we should all be wearing it. (laughs) Apparently we should all be wearing it,
1: yeah. So linen is actually the oldest known fabric, which I didn't know. Um, And it's, yeah, it's a natural fiber. It's cultivated from the flax plant. I don't know exactly what makes bast fibers bast fibers, but they almost have like some similar seed component. Hemp fiber, obviously made from hemp plants. So uh, <laughs> you're likely to see more hemp products as like marijuana legalization goes forward, <laughs> which is kind of like an interesting byproduct of that. <laughs> bast fibers are really good for the environment. They use less energy, and fewer chemical imp- inputs. So generally, they can just be cultivated a lot more sustainably. So this is the one fabric that Elizabeth Klein, author of The Conscious Closet, says, you should just be looking for these fabrics full stop. But then she also says, of course, you can also buy organic ones or recycled ones. That's good, too.
0: Yeah, and I think that those fabrics are naturally more expensive. They have like a like a price premium because they know that people care. I don't know.
1: Yeah, although I think like... um. Yeah, I think linen is definitely, seems to be more expensive, but like, I don't know. I feel like you can get hemp pretty cheap.
0: I guess I'll find out. I have this sewing machine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know.
1: I haven't, I haven't worn hemp fabric before, so I I don't really know. But but it's got like a strong association with hippies. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just, I'll just mention some, some labels that you can look for because we talked about, you know, you should look for organic, you should look for Safe Chemical Certified. What are some of those labels that you might see? So some safe chemical certifications that you might see out there. One is called Cradle to Cradle or C2C. Another is called Opotex. Um, That's spelled O-E-K-O and then Tex, like TexMex. And then the last one for safe chemicals is Blue Sign Approved. So any of those labels are on a product that could help you to know that less hazardous products are being used. Some organic certifications you might look for. One is the Global Organic Textile Standard, another is the Organic Content Standard, and the third one is Cradle to Cradle or C2C, so you can look for any of those. Fairtrade we talked about a little bit in the sugar episode, but there are a few different fair trade labels out there. Uh, one of them that you might see is Fairtrade USA, but anything that says Fairtrade certified is likely to have some labor standards and probably also hazardous toxins standards, but you can look into specific ones. So yeah, you can look at all of those options and choose your fabrics accordingly. A sort of brief discussion on garment production and distribution and the environmental impacts there. So the first thing to note is that water use is sort of a big thing in garment production. A lot of that comes from the fabrics, but there's also a fair amount used in producing garment as well. I found a stat that says if fashion production maintains its current pace, the demand for water will surpass the world's supply by 40% by 2030. So fast fashion is really messing with our water supply.
0: Whoa, that's bonkers. That 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 is so ridiculous that I have trouble wrapping my head around that. That's in <laughs> 10 years. Yes. And uh, I mean, that's really just a
1: sign of... Like, how much fashion we're producing every year and how fast it's growing, you know? So the next one is emissions. So apparel and footwear production is about 8% of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. And because clothing production is growing quickly, emissions from textile manufacturing is projected to grow by 60% by
0: 2030.
1: Whoa! Yeah, Which, I mean, if you've put that in conjunction with the water use stat, it kind of makes
0: sense. But it is pretty shocking. This is completely unsustainable. Yes. (laughs) I knew it was bad, but this is news to me. (laughs) I didn't know it was this bad. Yes. So the other
1: big environmental impact of fast fashion is pollution and hazardous chemicals. And I want to spend a little more time on that because there are a few things to unpack The first one that I won't go into that much is the plastic microfibers issue. So right when you have synthetic fabrics, they break down and shed. Plastic microfibers gets into our
0: water supply, and basically we're just eating plastic all the time. And a lot of that's from the clothing industry, especially if you're throwing stuff out after (laughs) seven wears. I mean, even if you take it to the thrift shop, I don't, I think a lot of it still gets thrown in the, in the trash. So Yeah. And that doesn't
1: account for the stuff that... Yeah, most of it's when it goes through the laundry, Exactly,
0: exactly. It doesn't account for the stuff that just happens when you're washing your stuff normally. So
1: yeah, toxic chemicals are also a big problem in the clothing industry. So there are 46 million tons of chemicals used to process textiles annually, um, and 10% of the chemicals that are used pose a risk to human health, and some are even linked to cancer, so...
0: That's a really high percentage. Uh
1: (laughs) It's not great. So that's a problem for worker health and the environment. Um, And it also is a problem for us because some of the chemicals that are used in processing clothing and garment production will stay on the clothes. So you should always wash your clothes before you wear them.
0: And then those chemicals wind up in our water supply, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, better that than you get in cancer. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. Um, Part of the problem is also like that these chemicals get dumped and they pollute the areas around where factories are. So in 2011, Greenpeace released a report that showed that suppliers of major, major clothing brands are basically polluting um, both the Yangtze and the Pearl River deltas in China. Um, and they're polluting them with toxic hormone-disrupting chemicals. So they're, they're basically looking at two different facilities. They didn't look at all the facilities. They just sampled from two, thinking like this is a reasonable sample. Like this, these are... Indicative of what textile factories look like generally in this area. Um, And in both of them, they found that the wastewater discharges um, had two hazardous chemicals. um, So there is alkylphenols and perfluorinated chemicals or PFCs. They were both present in the wastewater. And those two facilities were linked to Abercrombie & Fitch, Adidas, Bauer Hockey, Calvin Klein, Converse, H&M, Lacoste, Nike, and Puma. So those are big brands.
0: And that's just two factories, and there's hundreds of factories in China.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, we don't even know what's going on most places, but there are probably lots of te- toxic chemicals. Greenpeace then followed this up with another one on the presence of non nonylphenol. phenol. Ethosylates or NPEs <laughs> in clothing.
0: <laughs> Good work. I appreciate the effort on that one. <laughs>
1: uh, basically what they did um, was they went to 15 leading clothing brands and they just like bought their clothing. So they bought a couple items of clothing um, and then they tested them for NPEs and they found that two thirds tested positive for the presence of NPEs. And basically what happens with NPEs is they wash off the clothing and they break down into nonalphenols, which then accumulate in the food chain. And as they accumulate, they become hella toxic. So it's not good. Um, and even though... So NPEs are banned in some places, uh, but we're still getting them because these clothes are produced in countries that don't have regulations for NPEs. They then sell the clothing here and the NPEs get into our water system when we wash them. So... Thanks, I hate those it. Are the kind, <laughs> yeah, those are the kinds of problems, right? There's like tons of, I'm sure there are many other issues I could have gone into just, you know, this, I told you this clothing was like a really overwhelming topic. There's a lot. Because it's, yeah, it's like omni-shambles bad. Um, so some tools that you can look to if you want to seek out uh, conscious brands. The first one is an app called Good On You, and it basically rates the ethics and sustainability of fashion brands. So you can look for that. There's a website directory called Done Good that you can look for that does a similar thing. Uh, Another one called Rank a Brand that's also similar. And then there's also the Fashion Revolution Transparency Index and the Ethical Fashion Report. I would recommend looking at a bunch of those and seeing if the brand shows up on many of them because they all have like slightly different metrics. So if your brand is doing pretty well on all of them, it's pretty likely that it's, it's holistically a good company or a better company than
0: most. All right, joke me. (laughs) <laughs> okay how many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh
1: i feel like eight can't be the punchline but that's my instinct
0: it's tentacles <laughs> oh tentacles oh that's so good <laughs> i get it <laughs> tentacles <laughs> that's the best one for sure
1: <laughs> okay so the last issue we'll talk about before we get to our challenge is uh, end-of-life issues. So, there's a really big problem that we're throwing out so many clothes. So, I found a really fucking shocking stat. Every second, so every, like, every second, like, a second.
0: <laughs> uh, <the> I equi- <laughs> just want to emphasize that. <laughs> one uh, thousand to one thousand. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So, every second the equivalent of one garbage truck of textiles enters the landfill or is burned, which amounts to 500 billion U.S. dollars lost in value due to clothing waste.
0: I I don't even know how to react to that. That's... Yeah.
1: A garbage truck every second. Holy shit. uh,
0: That's too much. (laughs) I feel like that's the only reaction I can give on that stat. That is is too much. (laughs) That is too
1: much. Ah. So in the United States, 23.8 billion pounds of clothes are thrown in the garbage annually, which is about 73 pounds per person.
0: There's no way I'm throwing away that much. So it must, it, a lot of it must be an offshoot of like the actual industry throwing away, just like stuff that gets made and then is never sold. That's gotta be.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know if the stat includes that, because that is a separate source of waste that like fast fashion brands will throw away. Uh, so it doesn't include that? So don't sell but I'm not sure if that even includes, it might, it might, or it could just be people throwing out clothes. It's kind of ambiguous. 73 pounds
0: per year, per person. That's so much. That's like, uh, not far from, like, I don't weigh much more than that. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's like almost my body weight in clothing that I'm throwing away every year. Statistically, I am not doing that. I don't, think although maybe I should start weighing my clothes before I get rid of them
1: yeah I think you're right that maybe it includes industrial like when the brands throw them out too because that does seem like even taking into account that we underestimate the amount of clothing we throw out every year and that we have that still seems like a lot oh
0: anyways it's a lot it doesn't matter where it's coming from it's too much
1: yeah, and based on those stats, it shouldn't surprise you that clothing is the fastest growing category of waste in landfills.
0: And because it's all made of polyester, it just breaks down into microplastics and stays in the environment forever, so...
1: <laughs> well, here's here's the, yeah, landfill thing. So, in addition to the problem of us just throwing out a garbage truck worth of clothes every second, that is itself a problem, um, but... The landfilling of clothes is an environmental problem, both for natural and synthetic fibers. So natural fibers do decompose slowly, but the problem is that when they're trapped in landfill, that can actually release methane, which is super bad for climate change. Yeah, it's not great. So, (laughs) No. So putting your cotton in the garbage,
0: really, really bad idea. Do not do that um, because you're just going to produce methane. Cotton can be composted, can it? Like, you could take it, if it's 100% cotton, can you not throw it in the compost?
1: Uh, It probably depends on the composter, but I would say it's better to use one of the other strategies that we'll talk about in the third part. Okay, cool,
0: cool, cool. Something to look forward to.
1: And then uh, synthetic clothing doesn't biodegrade. It takes hundreds of years to actually break down. But as it slowly does, the hazardous chemicals they're made out of can be released into the air and the ground. So, uh, it's also shitty. So, yeah. The good news is that we can really make an impact on this. So, for every two million tons of textiles we keep out of landfills, we can
0: reduce carbon emissions
1: to the equivalent of taking a million
0: cars up the road. Oh, okay. That's, like, that's a statistic I like the sound of.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. Um, do you want to talk about our challenge a little bit? Yeah, let's. Yeah. So, in... Part three, we're going to be talking a lot about what it is to build a conscious closet. And the first step in the book by Elizabeth Klein is basically take an inventory of what is in your closet, just to look at what it is, what it's made of, and which ones you actually wear and which ones you don't. So Kyla and I did that. Um I made a crazy
0: Excel spreadsheet for it. I don't know if you used it or not. But... I did use your Excel spreadsheet, but you had a separate column for every type of fiber that your clothes were made out of. And I deleted those and I just wrote down uh, under materials what the makeup was. I'm like, oh, 97% cotton, 3% elastane or whatever.
1: Yeah, I just wanted like a visual way to see like, am I using a
0: lot of things with cotton or like viscose or what? Okay, so what did you find for yours? I found that so I first of all I googled what the average amount of clothing is that people own and there isn't really an answer uh from what I could tell. When you Google it the top result is like 125 pieces or something. But then when you look into it deeper, you know some people are gonna have way more than that. Um, and not very many people are going to have less. So I would say that's pretty close to like the bottom of of the range. I would like to preface this by saying that I've spent the last four and a half years living a very transient lifestyle. For a lot of that time, I was living out of a backpack, so I didn't own very many clothes and I can feel pretty smug about my number of what I own now, but I've also only been living in one place for a couple of months and we'll see how I go moving forward. But I only have 76 items of clothing and a lot of those were thrifted or rescued from uh my fashion company that I used to work for. So rescue is probably the wrong word, but I don't know what they do with the clothes, but we would get a bunch of samples sent to the head office. And then every once in a while they do like a sample sale and you can get like these amazing clothes that are like really great brand names, really well made, good material. You could get them for like a few pounds. Yeah, so a lot of my clothes were just like, oh, like all of these clothes are amazing and they're practically free. So I bought a bunch of stuff uh, from that and a lot of my stuff is thrifted as well. So I'm pretty happy with how that's gone. A lot of my stuff is new because I've just moved somewhere where I had to like get a new wardrobe for like a couple of jobs. But out of 76 items, 11 of them were pajamas, which I feel like says something about me as a human being. It says you like to be comfy. That's more than like 10% of my wardrobe is just like pajamas. What about you? What did you find? My equivalent
1: to that is, yeah, um, so I have 122 total items in my closet, which is like, I think pretty normal in terms of numbers, but we'll, we'll talk about... In the next part, um, like what your magic wardrobe number is, like everyone's going to have a slightly different, a slightly different ideal number of clothes in their closet, depending on what kind of person they are and what their life is like. So I think 122 is maybe a little high for what I ideally should be at. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> a full one quarter of my wardrobe, though, is athletic wear. <laughs> <laughs> Lounging. I do not gear. need to buy another pair <laughs> of leggings for a really long time. Uh, <laughs> And I also, I also looked at how much of my wardrobe was new. So about a third of my wardrobe was purchased in 2019 or 2020 um, or was obtained in 2019 or 2020. Some of it was thrift shops. Some of it was gifts or hand-me-downs or whatever. One of them I won. So yeah, t-shirts. Nice. Uh, <laughs> it's probably really bad for the environment. But yeah, that was a higher proportion than I was expecting. But it's not really all that surprising given what the consumer trends are. Um, and yeah, I did like a really rough calculation and I found I've worn each item an average of 20.1 times. Nice. <laughs> a really rough average. Yeah. Nice.
0: Yeah, I, I, I looked at how many times I'd worn stuff and I would say most of my wardrobe I've worn at least 10 times. And almost all of it is new. Even the stuff that I got from work basically went straight into a suitcase because then I went on a trip around the world for like nine months. So I didn't get a chance to wear a lot of it. So I took it out of my suitcase when I got home. And so a lot of my stuff, because just because of the way I was living, I've worn a hundred plus times. <laughs>
1: yeah. And when I said my like calculation was really rough, basically what I did, because I mean, you don't know exactly how many times you've worn an item. Um, so I put it into, I either said I'd worn it less than five times, five to 10 times, 10 to 25 times or 25 plus times. And there are some things in that 25 plus category that are like barely above 25, but there are others that like are well into the 200s.
0: Yeah, 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 Yeah. which is fair. So uh, part of this project is to decide what you're going to, if you're going to get rid of anything to kind of like have a look and see like, do I need all of this stuff? Did you decide you're going to keep anything? So yeah, I decided, I mean, most of
1: the stuff in my wardrobe I want to keep, but there were three things that I'm looking at getting rid
0: of. And in part three, I'm going to talk about what I'm planning to do with them. Oh, good. I'll tell you what I'm going to do with my five items then. (laughs) Hey, Kristen. Mm Mm-hmm. Why did the crab never share?
1: I don't know. Why?
0: Because he was shellfish. (laughs) (laughs) So for anyone just tuning in to the third part, uh, I've been trying to liven up how depressing the first two were with some really corny jokes, and I still have a whole bunch left. So even though this episode (laughs) doesn't need them as much, (laughs) we are going to get them.
1: (laughs) They've been prepped. They're going to be used. (laughs) So, trying to incorporate ethics into how we dress ourselves can be really overwhelming. I mean, we talk for, what, like, three hours and barely scratch the surface of the, the topics. So, the overall message, I think, that we need to take is that we do need to reject the mentality of fast fashion, since the business model itself is what's causing a lot of the problems. Like, that was why the first two episodes were so depressing. We had some... Some like concrete steps that you could take, but most of it is about sort of like disengaging yourself from fast fashion, which is a lot harder than, you know, just finding the right eco label. So uh, just a few stats to reinforce why it's true that we need to disengage from fast fashion. More than 70% of the average wardrobe is going unworn. So we don't wear most of the clothes that we have. Being more intentional about your wardrobe is basically, it's an important first step. That's not really a stat. It's just something that's true. (laughs) Uh, And the best way for you to have a a positive impact is just to wear the stuff that you have for longer. It can really cut down your environmental footprint. But the challenge with that is if you've got a fast fashion wardrobe, which like most of us, if we're millennial or Gen Z, we do... Then you've got a wardrobe that's full of shitty materials that wear out quickly. And so just wearing your clothing for longer can be really tricky. So, what we want to talk about in this episode is like, what can you do to fix that? And the nice thing is that there's a really good book with practical advice on how to do that. And uh, I spent some time reading it. It's called The Conscious Closet and it's written by Elizabeth Klein. We're going to go through her general advice in this episode, but I do sort of really highly recommend just get this book. I won't necessarily always say this about books. A lot of the times I'll love a book. But this one really like you should just get it because it has a lot of great details that we can't cover in a podcast episode, but that are so practical and so useful. Um, It's maybe the most practical book I've ever read. So we talked about our own conscious closet cleanouts in part two. So, we're, we both identified a couple of items that we wanted
0: to remove, but most of our stuff's going to stay. As people who we already kind of think about this sort of stuff, like we started this podcast because it was already on our minds. So, I think hopefully you and I are maybe doing a little bit better than the average. So, we have fewer things to get rid of, but I think if 70% of the average person's closet is going unworn, maybe a listener might be getting rid of more stuff than us. I mean, we don't own a lot. Whereas I think in the book, you sent me some like screenshots. She she started out with what, 350 plus items when she first started her ethical fashion journey, which I think is maybe closer to what like a normal person might find in their closet, which... I mean, that's just the world we live in. So, like, I'm not going to stand here and judge you guys. I had a different lifestyle for the last few years that meant I had to have a smaller wardrobe. That's all there is to it. Yeah,
1: and I will just say, like, I was surprised by the number of items that I had. I think a lot of listeners will be surprised by, like, actually how many clothes they have. And we didn't count socks and underwear,
0: which I think... Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah, it would really run up that total. (laughs) But yeah, um, I think even if you're not going to do any of the other stuff, literally just counting all the items that you have is a really interesting. Yeah, it's an eye opener for sure. So throughout the episode, we're going to talk about those items that we wanted to get rid of um, as it sort of comes up with the sort of themes that we're talking about. Uh, So hopefully we'll make it a little bit more practical for everybody. But first, uh, what is a conscious closet? So essentially a conscious closet, it's just a wardrobe that's built with greater intention and awareness of our clothes. So that can be like awareness of where they come from, what they're made out of, and why they matter. So looking at like what each element of your wardrobe contributes to the overall wardrobe is also sort of part of the picture. And I don't know about you, Kyla, but I do not intentionally develop a wardrobe. I don't think like, oh, I need x basic to fulfill y function
0: like i need this piece of clothing to make this other piece of clothing into a beautiful outfit whereas i just see a shirt that i like and i'm like well <laughs> we'll mm-hmm. figure it- i mean most of my bottoms are like black jeans for work so that pretty much goes with everything but yeah i think this book <laughs> does recommend maybe picking stuff with more intention like this is going to go with this outfit
1: yeah she basically says like you should have a set of basics. I mean, maybe this is stuff that like previous generations would definitely all have known. But I don't know. I grew up in fast fashion and I did not I did not learn how many basic items you should have and what like what neutral colors were appropriate and how to develop your color palette and like how many pants you need and like it just that's not stuff that I feel we're taught. We just anymore. bought what was trendy and then got rid of it like a year yeah, later. Exactly. <laughs> so There are a lot of different tools and strategies to build a conscious closet, and we're going to talk about some, but not all of them today. Um, And the mix of strategies that works best for you is going to be different for everybody. Uh, And one sort of tool that Klein identifies to help you with that is different fashion personality types. And Kyla, I think I immediately know which one both of us are, but (laughs) (laughs) but there are three. So there are minimalists, style seekers, and traditionalists. So, minimalists buy for keeps, have a more timeless look, and want to cut clutter from their lives. Maximalists, uh, style seekers are maximalists, and they basically want, like, statement pieces, and they need lots of change in their wardrobe. And then traditionalists are kind of, like, in the middle of those
0: two things. So, which one of those do you think you are? Uh, I would think that necessity has made me a minimalist for the last six, seven years. Mm. And I would like to keep being a minimalist, but... Now that I own some nicer clothes from my old job, I do kind of like having statement pieces. Like, it's something that I didn't Mm. have when I was younger, and I'm appreciating as an older version of myself. (laughs) What about you?
1: Interesting. Yeah, I feel like, um, so almost the opposite. Like, um, I don't think I was ever a style seeker anyone that knows me. That's not true. Um, but I do think, um... I've gone for more like trendy pieces, like really bright shirts and things like that in the past. And now I'm trying to move towards a more minimalist wardrobe. So I'm like aspirationally minimalist, whereas now
0: you're sort of like, hey, I want to throw on some style seeker elements. Yeah, I like that we're crisscrossing here.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like the point in this book is like you can be any of those three and you can also be like mixes of both in different parts of your life. And that's okay. There there is a way to build a conscious closet anyway, um, with those, but it just means that like you'll everyone has slightly different ways of approaching it.
0: Yeah, well, and it depends on your needs. Like if I'm working at a job where I have to wear black jeans, then I'm going to just get black jeans and it that's pretty easy. Yes. But also one of my other jobs that I do is sometimes I do background for movies and TV shows. And with that, you have to come with your own kit. So I do have to have some statement pieces because when I show up to uh, part as an extra in a movie or a show, I need to bring clothing that is neutral because I'm supposed to be in the background, but also is stylish.
1: Yeah, see, and the grad student life is like riding in a room alone, so I need sweaters.
0: Active wear. <laughs> Yeah, there's actually we talked about um, our challenge in the last episode where we went through our closets and saw how many pieces we had and decided what was going to stay and what was going to go. And I had about eight pieces that I haven't worn very often. But they're so perfect for work as a background, like person in movies and shows that I'm going to keep them even though their exclusive use is to be brought to set.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it was a similar thing with I have like a number of suit jackets that I don't wear very often. I just haven't recently had occasion to. But I'm, like, not going to get rid of those because they're still useful in some contexts. It's just that when you are finishing your PhD, you do not need to dress up very often. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: you nice. need to stay
1: in a room by yourself and write. So, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just, just to say that, like, everyone's wardrobe's going to be different. And this isn't about, like, Mary condoing your wardrobe. But... It is just like thinking more consciously about what genuinely do you wear, what don't you wear, and what genuinely do you need in a wardrobe. So there are basically six components to a conscious closet. So the first set is like four keeps clothing. So that stuff you own right now, you love and you want to keep wearing. Don't shame yourself if you think that you bought a thing unethically that you like. Just keep it. If you love it, keeping it and wearing it more is only going to make The footprint of that clothing better over time then there is clothes that are new to you but not new so you can swap borrow make um thrift thrift yeah you can get hand-me-downs you can go to the resale market you can get go to vintage shops a lot of different ways to get clothes that are not new but are new to you then there are clothing rentals we'll talk a little bit more about that as well She also says that you'll need a certain amount of like high quality timeless pieces. So in some cases, that means spending more on individual items, but she actually does a really good job of showing that this typically will cost you less over time. And also um, by like applying the right strategies, you can actually spend very little on them, especially if you're willing to go to like resale markets and things like that. You can get really good quality items really cheap. Um, And then uh, the big better brands. uh, So these are... Big brands that are on the right path compared to their peers, so you will probably need to buy some of that. Um, And then conscious superstars, so buying to support really ethical, really sustainable brands that are pioneering, that can be good too. So we talked last episode about how we started with that clean closet inventory and clean out. Klein has some suggestions for how to go about that, which uh, Kyla and I looked at, but listeners won't know yet. So we'll share that a little bit. It's a good way to really examine what you own, how often you wear it, if at all, what it's made of, etc. And you can learn a lot about your style from that. So one thing to emphasize is that you should not throw anything at all in the garbage from this. Some things you may want to have leave your wardrobe, but you need to have a resale or reuse plan for that. So you're not throwing things out Um, And here are some other tips. So the first one is, um, you should only get rid of things in season. So if there are a bunch of summer dresses that you're looking at getting rid of in the middle of winter, first of all, you're not necessarily going to make good decisions about what you actually wear. So you might end up getting rid of something that you actually want and use a lot. But secondly, it's going to be easier for you to responsibly get rid of that item if you are getting rid of it when it's in season because a lot of like resale and donations people are buying or getting it when it's in season another thing if you love it keep it even if you now really hate the company that made it don't shame yourself for getting that item keep it and use it as long as you as long as you can Um, and just know that um, building a conscious closet takes time and part of disengaging from fast fashion is knowing that this is a slow process Uh, The next one is ignore money. So if there are expensive items in your closet that you don't use or wear, it's okay to get rid of that. Don't think about it so much. Put sentimental items into storage and uh, pay attention to what you wear most and why they make you happy. So is it the fabric? Is it the cut? Is it the color? What is it that makes you love that item as much as you do?
0: And then when you buy stuff in the future, you can think about that a little bit more, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have like a favorite color or something?
0: Kyla, I wear yeah, I wear a lot of like burgundy and deep blue. It just looks good on my skin tone. Nice. (laughs) What about you?
1: Uh, I'm a huge fan of teal. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, eventually you'll want to get to your what she calls magic wardrobe number. So that's basically how many clothes you need, and that's going to be different for everybody. So. Klein basically says that minimalists can be happy with 50 pieces or fewer, so that's a little closer to the number that Kyla had. How many did you have again? I forget.
0: I had 76, but eight of them were for background, and five of them I'm going to be repurposing. Mm-hmm. So I I would love to be close to the 50 mark, but also as someone who lived as a strict minimalist for several years, I also am not going to punish myself <laughs> if I want to own 11 pairs of pajamas. <laughs>
1: no you absolutely shouldn't yeah and yeah she says like so minimalists they might go as low as 50 but style seekers might need 250 items or more and that's okay that's totally
0: fine as long as you're getting use out of them and you care about the stuff that you own and you especially the new stuff you bought it with purpose in mind like you you like this is ethical or as ethical as it can be and i need it for this purpose even if that purpose is completing a look
1: Yes, exactly. And so one way to sort of get a sense of what your magic wardrobe number is, is to, you can, one is to use a fashion fast. So that's where you take a length of time, you can define how long that is, and just you commit not to buying anything new during that period. It'll give you a real sense of like, how often you're shopping and things like that. Um, And then another one is a capsule wardrobe where basically you limit yourself to a small number of items and you can only use that number of items for a period of time. Um, A number that I've seen a lot with capsule wardrobes is like 30. So you just have to mix and match those same 30 items. That can be a really good way to give you like a more concrete picture of how much clothing you really need. Um, And another thing is like even though uh, we've stressed like If you're on the fence, keep items. Uh, It's important to also note that like having a more cluttered wardrobe makes you value the clothes that you have less. So especially at the beginning, if you've been buying like lots and lots of clothes, you might be getting rid of a fair amount of stuff and that's okay too. So when you're deciding what you're gonna get rid of, first of all, aim for balance and look for things that go together. So don't get rid of all your pants. (laughs)
0: Just don't. (laughs) Gotta wear pants. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Stupid laws.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look for pieces that don't go with anything else um, and either find a way to make them work with some of your outfits or that might be a sign that it should go. Cut back on super trendy pieces. Doesn't mean you have to get rid of all of them, but if there's a trendy piece that you're not wearing because it was from like three seasons ago and it's not in style anymore, then that's a lesson you've learned, right? And again, learn from items that you've never worn. So if there's something that you purchased that still has a tag on it that you never wore, don't shame yourself for that. But just think about like, oh, did it maybe not fit very well? Was there like something you didn't like about it? And just keep that in mind for yourself for the future, because that'll shape how you buy things afterwards. Uh, When you're eliminating things that are like worn out or feel low quality, focus on like what the fabrics are that wore out more quickly and what brands produce them, because that can give you a hint as to like what might be better in the future. Um, And if you're even a little unsure, just keep it for a while and give it another go. You might find that you discover new ways to wear an item and then becomes a staple of your wardrobe again. And then uh, try to repair items if you can. The next thing is like once you've, gone through your wardrobe, you've counted it all, you've decided what you want to stay in your wardrobe and what you don't want, you have to come up with a reuse plan. So that's basically like how do you deal with the stuff you don't want anymore responsibly. Um, And there are basically like four different ways that you can responsibly get rid of clothes, but you have to really think about the item and which is the best fit for which options. So the first option is donating or giving away. So, the best sort of short line for that is do it when clothes are in a clean and wearable condition. Uh, Next one is sell or swap. Do this only for your highest value on trend and in season pieces and only when they are in pristine condition. Otherwise, they're unlikely to be taken and unlikely to be sold. Repair, do this when you can and either keep it for yourself or put it in one of the first two categories. When items are worn out and they can't be repaired, recycle. That's sort of your, like, last case scenario. So, should we talk about donations a little bit?
0: Yeah, I would say that's what I do with, like, 90% of my clothing when I get rid of it. I I try to bring it to a thrift shop. I used to live in London, and they're all about, like, thrift shops there. Yes. They're all... You, like, studied this specifically, so I'm sure we can do an episode on this. But in London, the model is that the thrift shops are owned by charities. So you get like this moral feel good because you're like oh I'm donating to a charity and when I buy uh, whenever I donate I try to buy something from the shop as well because I feel like if I'm always giving stuff to the shops and never buying then that contributes to more of the problem but I I don't know most of my clothes are secondhand so I'm I'm into that what what about you
1: I donate as well, but I don't think I've been doing it as consciously as I maybe should. Like looking into this topic has really opened my eyes to the problems with clothing donations. So I think I think I'm going to try to do it less now, because um, well, I'll I'll tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have it make me feel so, bad about no, every decision well, I've no, ever made. It's just like it's a thing everyone does. It's a thing I do. We all sort of like donate clothes. I've I'm totally guilty of just like dropping off clothes that I haven't even really looked at how good the condition they're in. And I just put them in the like back entrance of value village. And I'm like, I'm done with these go to a good home, you know? Um, but charities actually only sell about 20 to 25% of what we donate and the rest gets exported overseas or downcycled. Downcycling basically means that they get turned into like mattress stuffing, insulations, or rags. They're not being recycled into, like, polyester that you can um, make another shirt out of. They're getting, like, shredded into insulation or something.
0: Well, and I'm pretty sure that I read, especially in the rag industry, they can only take certain fibers, which means that since most of our clothes are polyester, and that's not something you can turn into a rag, it just gets thrown in the bin. Um, Yes. Maybe.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So a lot of what you're donating ends up in landfill. The other problem is... um, so if it's not downcycled, then and it's not sold, it will often get exported overseas, which in theory sounds nice, right? But used clothes exports have tripled in the last 15 years. So the US exports 1.7 billion pounds of clothes annually. I can't remember, there was a country that gets a lot of exports of clothes that was like gonna shut that shit down because it's causing problems. And Trump like threatened a trade war over it, so they backed down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> yeah. um, wow, US politics is bananas lately. <laughs> like <yes. laughs> uh so yeah, um most
1: exported clothes go to sub-Saharan Africa where secondhand dealers distribute and sell it. And that sounds good, but because we've been increasing the volume and decreasing the quality of the apparel that gets donated. Most of the secondhand dealers that are there can't actually make a living anymore. And so a lot of them are in like extreme poverty because
0: the clothing, like there's so much of it and it's all such low value. It's basically garbage. Well, it also pushes out of business any local textile manufacturers who would have been making good quality stuff and selling it in their communities. Yes. I think I read this about the Toms model of shoes where it's like you buy a pair of Toms and then they give a pair of shoes, but then which sounds so good in theory, but then all it does really is like push local cobblers out of business.
1: Yes. And like Toms are at least nice shoes. Like this is, in this case, it's like Walmart t-shirts that have been worn three times, you know, and are made not to last. That were
0: not good enough for Valley Village. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so it's a real problem. Ultimately, a lot of this stuff then ends up in the garbage. Um, and (laughs) then like, I mean, statistically, sub-Saharan African countries, because they're taking most of it, are going to end up having to then just deal with wealthy Western countries' clothing garbage. There's an NGO that found that 40% of all used clothing imported to Ghana is immediately landfilled rather than worn or resold. So it really is just like, I mean, there's been a lot of talk lately about aspirational recycling, where people will just like throw recycling, throw like stuff that shouldn't be in the recycling bin in the recycling bin because they don't want it to be
0: garbage. And I think the same thing's happening with donated clothes, you know? But then all that happens is that you're increasing the carbon footprint because now we're flying (laughs) stuff to landfill instead of just sending it to local landfill. Yeah,
1: and also I think if donated clothes, like if that was a problem that we had to confront in Canada or in the United States or in the UK or in Australia, we would probably consider more fully our fast fashion problem, you know? That'd be something that'd be in the news more often, but it's like sort of out of sight and out of mind because it just gets exported to Africa, you know? Okay, so
0: thrifting isn't the best way to get rid of your clothes. (laughs) No, I mean,
1: go thrifting you, but like um, donating, you need to make sure you're doing it effectively. So the first thing to think about is to really investigate and make sure you're giving it to a reputable charity. If you're using a clothing donation bin, look for a bin that's clearly marked with the organization's name and then go to their website and look at their acceptance policies. Um, And then another option is just to donate directly to those in need. So homeless shelters, crisis centers and churches. If you have winter clothing or professional attire, those are often two really good things to donate because they're always in demand. Another thing is like anytime you're donating, you've got to follow used clothing etiquette. And that means always, 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 always cleaning your clothes first. Um, it's the best way to keep them from ending up as trash. Uh, remove your personal belongings from pockets. Tie shoelaces together because oftentimes shoes will get separated. And uh, if they get separated, they still have some value, but it's a lot less than if they're a pair.
0: Interesting. That's not that's not something I ever thought about, but I will mm, know. Me neither.
1: <laughs> yeah. Mend and uh, repair whenever possible. Even if you're planning to donate still, if you can mend and repair it, that'll really increase the likelihood that it gets um, it gets used again. And uh, never leave your donations outside unattended because they can get rained on and then it will be landfilled. Let's talk about recycling now. So most clothes are recycled through downcycling, so the clothes that you recycle are turned into lower quality products like regs or insulation. That doesn't ultimately solve the waste problem because these things will still eventually end up in a landfill, but it does increase the length of that product's lifespan, and that's a good thing. So recycling is still better than landfilling. There are companies that are working on recapturing fabrics um, so that they can be used again in exactly the same way as um, virgin fabrics or like first use fabrics. Um, And that's really neat. And hopefully in the future, it will be both possible and affordable. But right now, it's where it exists, it's fairly niche. So for now, how do you recycle your clothes responsibly? So the first tip if you are donating your clothes to major charities or thrift shops, a lot of it's likely to already be recycled. So you can look at their policies to check to make sure. But a lot of times, anything that's not being resold, they'll some of it will be exported and some of it will be uh, recycled. Uh, there's also in-store garment recycling options. Um, I'll talk about those a little more when we go into one of the items I wanted to get rid of. Then uh, some brands will also recycle or repair their own clothing. Um, so they take basically take responsibility for the end of life of their product, which is something more sustainable brands are starting to do. And ultimately, like that's something I think all brands should do.
0: I think H&M does that, doesn't it? Where you can no. bring your Oh,
1: no. Uh, H&M will do clothing recycling. Um, Patagonia is one that will they'll recycle or repair their own clothing, but not other brands. Whereas like, Uh, Let's talk about this now, actually, because it is where I ended up going with um, recycling. Okay. But just one more option. Some cities will have textile recycling, so you can look into that if your city has it. So I had a well-used hoodie and a stained workout shirt that I wanted to get rid of, and neither of those will do well in donations or like resale. So I decided I should try to recycle it. And I was looking at the different recycling programs that were available in Toronto because uh, to some extent, what recycling programs are available is like really local. So I found that H&M, American Eagle, Puma, and North Face all have recycling programs that will accept any brand of clothing. So I could potentially bring my clothes to any of those outlets. I was not able to find municipal recycling in Toronto. uh, So that wasn't an option. The four clothing brands that have those sort of like recycling programs, they all use the same company, a company called ICO, um, and that sorts and reprocesses the clothes. So since they're all partnered with the same recycling company, I cannot imagine that it makes any difference which one it goes to because ultimately they're just bringing it to the same third party anyway. So basically the only difference then is like, which is more convenient for me and do I want the rebate? I don't really want the rebate for any of those brands. North Face maybe, but not really. I'm trying to get away from fast fashion. so um, (laughs) (laughs) That's how they get (laughs) you. Yeah, that's how they get you, yeah. So um, I decided I'm going to go with the H&M location just because it's a lot more convenient for me to get to by subway. So that's what I'm going to do. And it's unlikely that those items are going to be resorted for rewear, but if they're good enough condition, they're good enough condition that hopefully they will be downcycled. Uh, so if recycling and donating is not the appropriate thing, what else is there? There's also selling and swapping. So if you want to resell your clothes, you have a couple of options. One is you can use an online service that basically takes on the entire process of selling the clothes to you, um, selling clothes for you. So ThreadUp is one that's available in Canada. Another big company that I don't think is available in Canada is called The RealReal. They take responsibility for the process of selling your clothes. As a result of that, they take a bigger cut, so you'll make less money off of that, but it is like lower maintenance. You can also sell clothes yourself online through website- websites like uh, Poshmark, and those you can get a slightly higher cut, but you're also going to be more responsible for the actual selling of it and getting it to someone.
0: Not that I ever want to shout out Facebook, but Facebook Marketplace, I think a lot of people <laughs> use as well for stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Um, And then you can also sell in person through consignment stores. Um, Just be aware, though, that like with all of these, you're probably only putting like your best clothing into it because people mostly want to wear like branded items that are
0: in season and that are trendy. You know, in good condition and probably not for the price that you paid for it. So lower your expectations for what you think your stuff is worth.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And consignment stores in particular can be very picky because they know what sells and what doesn't. So don't be surprised if they turn you down. They get a lot of clothes. The types of clothing that do well in the resale market uh, so on trend and recent purchases. If you bought something, wore it once, and realized you hated it, that's probably like a good candidate. Uh, luxury and designer brands and in-season items bypass resale if your clothes are damaged if they're basics or if they're kids clothes menswear or workwear those are probably not going to sell you can also if you're not into like actually using a resale uh, tool you can organize a clothing swap with friends or a community group that can often be a good way to do things i had a a one pair of clothes that I thought might be a good candidate for resale, um, it was a pair of dress pants that I'd only worn, like, once or twice, maybe, and that just, um, they just don't fit anymore. So first I thought, well, okay, can I get them tailored? But apparently it's very hard to actually take in dress pants, which I didn't realize. Um, and so it that didn't really turn out to be an option. So I thought, you know, either renting them out or reselling them might be a good option as well. But unfortunately, it's a basic, so it won't do very well in the resale market. I did look at Poshmark and Thread Up, um, but it didn't seem to really like, that wasn't the kind of clothes they were selling. Um, it was a lot more like embellishment pieces. Another option is to like trade on like Facebook Marketplace or Buns or something like that. But ultimately, I decided it would probably just be better to donate, but we want to do this responsibly. So I looked into a couple of options. So I live near a value village, um, which is, I think I've mentioned earlier in this episode, in the past, I've just donated clothing there. But when I actually looked into it, I was pretty unimpressed with it, actually. They seem to accept pretty much everything. And there's very little information on what they do with the clothing that doesn't sell. So that set up some red flags for me. Although if listeners know more about what Valley Village does with their clothing, I, we'd love to hear it. My building has a Diabetes Canada bin, which is um, it's sort of like the most common clothing bin you'll find in Canada. They seem to be like the big clothing acceptors. And their website says that their clothes is – basically they get their clothes collected by a social enterprise called National Diabetes Trust. And I was like, oh, maybe this is a really good option. Uh, But then I found out that all they do is deliver their clothing to Valley Village, so I was, like, not super impressed. The option I ended up going with was a charity called Dress for Success Toronto, and it's a charity that provides uh, support and professional attire and tools to help women achieve economic independence.
0: Oh, that's nice.
1: Yeah, they have a really good charity rating, and uh, they, like, seems like a perfectly good organization, so I think I'm just going to drop off my dress pants there and... Hopefully they'll be great for somebody that's going to
0: a job interview. Nice, that's all right. That's a good choice.
1: Yeah. So resale didn't really work out there. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it could work for something else. Have you ever um tried like a clothing rental before?
0: No, no. I'm I, I haven't. I don't know anything about it. I know that like guys will rent tuxedos for like weddings, but that's literally all I know about like clothing rental.
1: That was all I knew before prepping for this podcast too. But it's. Amazing, like so. Yeah, I think for a long time it was basically like men's tux rentals, and then there started to be some like women's dress rentals that were happening too. Um, but now there's like a whole bunch of clothing rental companies that are out there. Basically, they all operate on one of two sort of models. The first one is um, companies where you can do one time rentals of specific items, uh, and the length can vary. And then the other one is actually like monthly subscription plans, which This book recommends is a really good thing if you're a style seeker, if you're someone that always needs statement pieces, doing a monthly rental subscription means you can constantly circulate through your wardrobe um, without actually buying anything new. So I thought that was a really neat idea. Ultimately, for me, though, they're like the prices can really differ, but it seems to be about $100 a month is like the low end.
0: So that would be for somebody who may be, like you said, a style seeker.
1: <laughs> yeah, someone that spends more
0: clothes. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think you and I have ever really been super into fashion. Yeah. But that's not to shame people who are. This is a really yes. cool service for them. Um, so That's something that other people might look into, but I don't know that we're the target demographic.
1: <laughs> no. And generally, um, the book suggests that, um, and this makes a lot of sense, like, if you're a minimalist, it's better to just invest money in a few really high quality pieces rather than going through the rental, like the rental option. Because like, I don't know, you're not going to need all those trendy items. But like if you're somebody that gets bored easily or like really needs statement pieces, that can be a really good option. And if, if you're worried about like sanitation, don't because rental companies always clean and repair their clothes. So you don't have to worry there. There is like the small concern of shipping and packaging, but this is minimal in comparison to the environmental impact of making clothes. So it's not necessarily zero waste. And depending on the rental company, there might be plastic packaging, but usually it's like usually it's local. So it's usually ground shipping. Um, So it can still be a really good environmental option, even if it's not zero waste.
0: Well, we haven't talked about the most ethical fast fashion choice, which is just to go naked all the time. (laughs) Just always be naked, (laughs) which is really the most ethical thing you can do.
1: Maybe you can do that in Vancouver where it's above zero all the time.
0: (laughs) Actually, I have another pickup line for you, and this one is related to fashion. Are you ready? I am so ready. Kristen, do you have a mirror in your pants? Because I can see myself in them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's like a, a slightly weirder version of the like party in my pants. <laughs> I like it, though. <laughs> so I've got one more. Um, there was an item that I didn't want to get rid of, but I don't really wear. It's like a pink blazer that I got secondhand, but I really like. But I haven't worn it in like a year because I just have not had the occasion to. Uh, So I thought, hey, maybe I could rent that, you know. I'm not ready to get rid of it because my my heart loves it too much. But maybe I can rent it out. So I looked into, there's a Toronto-based rental subscription company called Dressed. And I think you can give them items. But it's basically one of those subscription-based services. So you can choose to either rent one item a month for $50 or three items a month for $99. And so they, they had some nice pieces, I would consider that, but I didn't see a way to, to rent it myself, so I bypassed that. And then I found another one called Reheart, uh, which is also available in Toronto. And uh, they actually do let you be a lender, so you can, you can lend out an item and you get a cut of the profits um, from renting that item. It's less than 50%, but Rehart also deals with the cleaning, etc. So it can be a good way to declutter. Unfortunately, though, Rehart, like, it's not taking on new lenders. They must just have too many. So I wasn't able to do that. So in my closet, it stays. And in the spring, I'll just resolve to wear it.
0: I want to see you in this pink blazer. It sounds like super fancy. It's really nice. Um, I really enjoy it. So like all of these suggestions you've made for how to deal with clothes that you don't want anymore, none of them fit the bill for what I've decided to do with my clothes. <laughs> Ooh, what's uh, that? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all of my clothes and I'm going to upcycle them, which is something that you hear a lot of people talking about. But basically, I'm going to cut them up and I'm going to make sound dampening panels for recording. Love it. So
1: for the niche podcast listener
0: (laughs) 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 who also wants to do a recording Uh, I mean it's a lot of work you can just buy sound dampening panels they're a little bit expensive and I have all this fabric that I'm not using so I found a YouTube video how to build a panel so that's what i'm going to do with my uh excess clothing because i'm going to just make sound dampening panels and when you come to visit me in vancouver you can have one because i'm probably going to make lots
1: <laughs> love it i was actually going to say once you figured out how easy it is let me know if you think it's achievable for a little old me to try
0: <laughs> once <laughs> i be yeah. <laughs> your birthday slash christmas ethical gift <laughs> love it like a really passive aggressive like your room's really echoey here is a sound dampening panel
1: this is really a gift for me so i don't have to edit you as much i can't do anything about all the ums you say but
0: <laughs> yeah so that's what i decided to do with my clothes i nice. i guess it's probably pretty ethical but i don't know
1: yeah repurposing it's definitely good you're giving it a second life
0: Yeah. Hopefully. We'll see how we go. If it's anything like the pajama pants I tried to make that I discussed in the first episode, (laughs) it's going to be an unmitigated disaster. So looking forward to that. I'm sure you'll crush it. Amazing. So... In this episode, we have talked about all of the different ways that you can get rid of clothes that you have already purchased that you need to find a new home for, and we talked about how you can think about your purchases in the future, and both of those are really great ways to combat the fast fashion industry, which is I mean, everywhere. (laughs) And as we discussed uh, in the first two episodes, in such detail that I literally cried in the first one. uh, Sorry. It's a mess. (laughs) And it's just really, yeah, I feel like you and I have already been pretty conscious consumers in this regard, and we still didn't know how bad we were being. So I can only assume that the average consumer could stand to think more about this stuff, which I guess is our call to action this week is like, do this closet count and see where you stand. I think it's a really useful activity. It took me with my 76 items, two hours, but I was filling in a spreadsheet the whole time. So
1: (laughs) yeah, I think maybe what we'll do when we release this episode is um, there's like a short template for a closet inventory that is not my insane Excel spreadsheet. uh, (laughs) We'll maybe share that so people have an easy tool.
0: So you can find that on the website, uh, pullback.org. You can reach us at Twitter at pullbackpodcast. You can reach us on email at pullbackpod at gmail.com. And of course, you can get us individually on Twitter. Kristen is a lot more responsive at Kristen Pugh. But if you want to dox me at Kyla Hewson, (laughs) I welcome it. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Uh, Is there anyone you want to shout out this week who has been really supportive or maybe someone you don't know, like how we discussed uh, some authors in the last ones?
1: Well, I mean, I've shouted Elizabeth Klein and her book out a zillion times in this episode already, but it's worth one more. Um, The Conscious Closet. If you want to disengage from fast fashion, it is an incredibly practical book. We've given you some of the tips from the book here, but honestly... This was maybe like a short snippet from about 50 pages of it. There's just, there's so many more tips that you can get. So check it out.
0: Amazing. That's a great shout out. I appreciate that. Even the eight pages that you sent me were just super well-written and non-judgmental and very practical. So I agree with that one. And I'm going to say thanks everyone for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Woo! Okay, Kristen, what's a computer's favorite snack?
1: Bits and bites?
0: Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a great answer. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> the one I have here is microchips, which ah, I also still also like. Good. But yeah. bits and bites. That was good. Yeah. Okay, Kristen, why do you never see elephants hiding in trees? Oh, it's something about trunks, I'm sure of this. <laughs> oh, that would be so much better. No, the answer what? is because they're so good at it. So you don't see them hiding, because they're hiding, and they're so good at hiding, you can't see them.
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: (laughs) Okay, maybe that one's not... uh, That one needs work. (laughs) I'll workshop that one. Something about trunks is better. We'll come back to that one. (laughs) Oh, this one's really on theme for us. Why do bees have sticky hair? I don't know. Why do bees have sticky hair? Because they use a honeycomb. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like that one too.